Welcome to The Conversation. I'm Heil Russell. And I'm Cameron Regal. Oh, 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 I knew that was coming, and that's why I didn't do it for me. But at least you, 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 you your name starts with a hard C sound, so it's, uh, it's more apropos when you do it. What are you talking about? Was my mic cutting out? <laughs> oh, Cameron, not E3... 2022 was a total bust, wasn't it? I, I mean, at least as far as DK Vine goes, uh, we 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 didn't get much in the way of anything. We we got a little bit in the grand scheme of things. It actually wasn't the worst E3 or not E3 we've ever had. It, it was. That's that's weird to say when it's an E3 Nintendo didn't show up to. <laughs> right. But somehow, sometimes Nintendo can just make it worse for us. It's like the wound is already gaping and then Nintendo comes along on Tuesday and just decides to pour salt in it. A whole shaker full. But, I mean, we got some good stuff. We got a really exciting update to Sea of Thieves, Cameron. And I know that it excites you and I. I, I or you and me. Me, me, me. It excites us because this is something we've been looking forward to for a long time in Sea of Thieves. But I also realize that if you aren't invested in Sea of Thieves already in the community, then this meant really nothing to you. And, you know, Platonic announced a new Platonic Friends title they're publishing, Elsie. And it's like, yeah, that's that's interesting. Might not be for me. I'm going to keep a, keep an eye on it, but it, you know, it's just little, little gator game. There is like a, a 30 second to a minute, something trailer looks, looks uh, absolutely adorable, but again, nothing really new. Um, so it's just, yeah, I mean, could have been worse. <laughs> absolutely could have been worse. They could have, you know, I don't know, murdered conquer execution style during the Xbox and Bethesda showcase, but they didn't. So uh avoided that it's just it's hard to bounce back from something that you know i mean we we do it to ourselves we hype ourselves up every year and then when nothing really happens for us for dk vine for our community you know it takes a bit to dust ourselves off and this was especially true this year where i had all these plans and it, it felt like everybody was getting sick that week and uh, I had to keep like pushing things around or pushing things back or scratching things off the schedule to the point where it just petered out into nothing. And um, yeah, so wh- where do we go from there, Cameron? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, <laughs> we have one last thing. To I mean, uh, ignoring the fact that we will probably be getting a Nintendo Direct later in the summer, we have one last thing, one last hope coming out of not E3. And that is the possibility that we could have a quote-unquote brand new DKU game. And, and when I say brand new, I mean a game that is roughly nine years old. Um... 
may have been plausibly DKU since early 2016. And it's a game we've discussed before on these DKU Tribunal episodes, but we've only dedicated a short segment to it. We've never gone all in on this debate. And I, of course, am talking about Super Mario Odyssey. No, I'm joking. Killer Instinct, parentheses, 2013. Or as you may know it from its box and title screen, Killer Instinct. And Killer Instinct 2013, this is a game that a lot of people point to as the true beginning of the Renaissance. Um, And others have mostly ignored it because they're not fighting game fans outside of Smash. But I think it's interesting, if if we're going to relitigate this, Cameron, and there are good reasons to relitigate it and, and devote an entire special session to pondering the question whether Killer Instinct 2013 is part of the DKU and whether DK Vine should cover it or not, uh, there, there's good reason to go down this path. But to do that, I feel like we need a brief history lesson on the Killer Instinct franchise and then go into the 2013 quasi-reboot by Double Helix Games, which then was taken over by Iron Galaxy Studios for seasons two and three after Double Helix was bought up by Bezos. So it's it's amazing that the game turned out how it did, considering that happened <laughs> and all of the other things that w- happened along the way. Of course, I was following along because even if it wasn't considered DKU at the time, even if my interest in Killer Instinct only extends as far as it's a classic Rare franchise, and of course I'm a big Rare fan. It was still fascinating to kind of see, as a student of pop culture, video games, and the nature of canon and continuity, the Killer Instinct, I call it a quasi-reboot, because it's a reboot, but it's also a reboot that allows a lot of wiggle room to allow for the first two games in the series to have actually happened. We'll get into that quite a bit, a little bit later. But I I, I was studying it because it, it was interesting to me the way they were going about it because 2013 is kind of when pop culture started, I think, trending away from harsh reboots. And, and it's like, no, people... I, I think Force Awakens really like shook that stupor out of pop culture where where it's like uh you know you don't actually need to reboot anything you can do a soft reboot and i don't know if you could consider killer instinct 2013 a soft reboot but uh it's it 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 kind of has its cake and eats it too i guess in the sense that it's a good entry point for somebody yeah but i mean it's generally the point of soft reboots so was force awakens so was donkey kong country returns if we're keeping it in-house to the DKU. Donkey Kong Country Returns was just a soft reboot of Donkey Kong Country. Still acknowledged that everything happened, didn't really dwell on it, kind of retold the first story again, 
but but did it in its own way. Right. You don't need to know anything about any previous Donkey Kong Country to just jump right into Returns. Especially the animal buddies, am I right? <laughs> but uh, yeah, I I I was fascinated by it, and then when this you know story broke that uh, Double Helix was being purchased by amazon i was like well this game is is dead this game is dead in the water i mean there's going to be no creative integrity here and uh somehow iron galaxy kept it going and and didn't drop the ball and i don't i of course i'm jumping into it now having played it uh, more in the last couple of weeks than I ever have in my entire life. But I don't see any seams in there at all. It, it just seems like one complete package. Because, full disclosure, so I I didn't own this. I wanted to own it. If I was going to make a definitive DKU ruling on it, I felt like I couldn't take any half measures. So I felt like I had to own it physically. I had to own the physical edition of it. And at this stage in the game, the best way to go about that, in my opinion, was getting the Killer Instinct Definitive Edition for Xbox One. And, uh, you know, it comes with all 26 characters and 20 stages from Seasons 1 through 3, as well as the original Killer Instinct arcade games, 1 and 2. And there's also uh, documentaries and... uh, artwork and it comes with the game soundtrack and of course i i require my killer instinct purchase to have a bundled soundtrack just not accurate to the killer instinct experience without it so uh i was like yeah i'll 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 buy it right uh and, and not not realizing that it has been what like a a solid six years since the definitive edition came out and they may not be making it anymore and with the speculative craze of video game collecting being the poisonous thing that it is these days they just buying an old game uh actually costs some money so not proud of this cameron I think the definitive edition like launched in 2016 to give you an idea of yeah how long ago that was it doesn't feel long ago uh, especially in the context of dk vine but it was a long time ago in the context of buying games because this set me back 170 us dollars i know and i i go on about how oh i can't afford an X- xbox series x this is part of the reason why my crippling dependency on completionism and and physical media, but I did it. Which it it should be pointed out. If you have game Xbox Game Pass, you can play Killer Instinct Definitive Edition as part of that and not pay a dime. That is true. That is entirely accurate and fair. This isn't a situation where Nintendo just delists games and shuts down their uh, their eShop on the Wii U and 3DS, and you're like, well, that game might be lost forever now. Um, you know, and Microsoft keeps their stuff available uh, with a few exceptions. Pour one out for Project Spark. But I knew that if we made a ruling in the definitive, for the definitive edition, if we made a ruling, I would need it on my shelf ASAP. I would need to have that physical edition. So I'd be making the purchase anyway. 
And ultimately, this is a game I have been interested in, so I was like, all right, I'll do it. I will feel better about it. Maybe that will help make me more agreeable to any changes that have come in this debate since we last brought it up. So, yeah, not happy about it, but I uh, I am happy to own it. It was like one of those things where I, I clicked it, made the made the order, and I like groaned and winced out loud, and I just kind of curled up in a fetal position for a while on my uh, new Rareware pillow from Fangamer. It's very, very soothing for those uh, regrettable shopping binges you do at places like Fangamer. So, <laughs> anyway... I, I mentioned that I did own a previous Killer Instinct game. That, of course, was Killer Instinct for the SNES. I, I never got Killer Instinct for the Game Boy. I don't think I've even never played it, but Killer Instinct Gold for the N64 was definitely just a rental. I, I think I rented it for a weekend, and, and that was it. But And, of course, I, I have Killer Instinct Gold as part of Rare Replay, but I don't think I've, I've ever, ever actually touched it in there. Yeah, I... Uh... I think I started with KI twenty thirteen. Wow! So you had no preconceived notions about the earlier Killer Instincts? Well, I I did, but it was from experiencing them through like the arcade game, like the arcade games. Um, whenever I would have the opportunity to play them, because occasionally I would run into a cabinet for them. Um, more more reliably than quite a lot of arcade games, actually. KI was pretty common. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course I. Followed Rare's website, so I knew about uh, Ask Uncle Tusk. Right. Um, but um, my my preconceived notion of Killer Instinct was uh, essentially, this is cool. I like that Rare has their own like fighting game franchise. This isn't for me because I can't get past the first screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's let's clear the air really quick here and just firmly establish that. Both you and I are probably terrible at Killer Instinct in any incarnation or form it takes. Doesn't mean I I don't like it. And and that's something that I realized as I was playing Killer Instinct 2013 quite a bit in the last week or two is, oh, this is really fun and the presentation actually makes me giddy in a lot of ways. It, it's over the top. It's bombastic. It knows it's bombastic. It, it really is like the epitome of mid-90s culture. And they've, they've actually retained that in the quasi-reboot. Yeah, um, I remember being nervous when the game had its 2013 debut. Like, is this going to be like... Is this going to feel like it's in the same spirit at all? And right. it very much does. Yeah, they, um, they didn't do much as far as, like, updating the tone. And, you know, you see some of those new characters. You've got, like, the 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 Japanese horror, like, Ringu lady. And, you know, you're, you're like, is, is this... Is this going to feel more like Mortal Kombat than it does Killer Instinct? But no, it it, it is totally the same vibes and energy as the originals. I think people got nervous when Sadira came out. Mm-hmm. Um, the spider woman who very much looks like a Mortal Kombat character. Yeah. And sounds like a Mortal like, Kombat oh, character. Were they? Sadira. Yeah. Sadira. But then the, like, as the game went on, I feel like they hit on exactly what 
Killer Instinct is, which is kind of honestly, Killer Instinct is a bit of a monster mash um, because, like, we've had a werewolf since day since day one, a cyborg. Uh, we we almost had a vampire. Um, right, you've got a you've got an ice creature, alien, extraterrestrial from space. You know, um, right, a, a dinosaur. Um, and over time, KI twenty thirteen sort of filled out like, well, we, let's follow that to its logical conclusion. What would we, what would we see? And we got Hisako, who is the Ringu inspired character, mm. pretty plainly. Um, we've got uh, Agonos, the like rock construct. Um, we've got Khan Ra, who. It is a mummy in all but like very explicit backstory. <laughs> right. Um we've had spinal since the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it, it, it Killer Instinct reminds me of, of kind of a blending of like Mortal Kombat and 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 a little bit of Street Fighter, but but it, it it's more just like taking those concepts and just putting them through a blender of mid nineties culture and Saturday morning cartoons. And, and you, yeah, you've got a, like a little bit of like maybe horror movie matinee kind of vibes to it too. I, I really like the tone of killer instinct. I think if there's any fighting game franchise that would stick with me. It it would be Killer Instinct because it's more up my alley than either Mortal Kombat or Street Fighter. And I say this as somebody who played Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat in their heyday, uh, you know, around 1993, before I got into Donkey Kong Country, Cameron. Before Donkey Kong Country came along and was a revelation for me where, oh my God, this is the game I have been waiting for. This is the game series I have been waiting for my entire life. I was kind of in search of that. I, I, I was a journeyman trying to find my way in the video game world. You know, I, I, I was always enamored with Super Mario, but Super Mario always felt kind of off to me. Not to say that I'm not still a fan of a lot of Super Mario stuff, but I, I never really clicked with Mario himself as a character, or Luigi, or, or much of the cast. I, I liked Super Mario Brothers 2 quite a bit. Uh, Super Mario World did it for me, but I was like, this, this isn't mine. This, this isn't where I'm home. I need to still search for that. I played Sonic the Hedgehog on an you know older teenage child of friends of my parents' Genesis, and... It's like this is cool, but this isn't for me. This is this is too frenetic. I d- I don't know. And uh, for a while, I got into those uh, the fighting games, Street Fighter Two Turbo Edition, and uh, Mortal Kombat. Although Mortal Kombat was more of a sneaky thing, where you know I I didn't want my parents to know I was playing it, so I play it at friends' houses and and what have you. But um. I, I like the colorful characters, and I I liked you know how a lot of lore could be conveyed in simple two D stages in the background and simple text screens, and and I liked all of that, and 
I, I liked everything but actually playing the game, like the way you're supposed to play it. I, I liked just plugging in a second controller and just beating somebody up as a dummy and, and trying to like get a handle on the moves, but I I was always bad at them and, and eventually I realized like, yeah, this just isn't for me either. And I thought about really getting into the Earthworm Jim, Boogerman, Clay Fighter universe. Uh, and then Knock on Country came along and saved me. But I say all that as kind of a <laughs> preamble of where I was with fighting games when the original Killer Instinct came along. Because Killer Instinct started life as sort of a fraternal twin sibling of Donkey Kong Country. Uh, you know, Donkey Kong Country was developed using Rare's advanced computer modeling technique, their ACM graphics, was developed for the Super Nintendo, while Killer Instinct used that same technique as a fighting game, but was developed for arcades, under the completely false pretense that it was running on Nintendo Ultra 64 hardware. That was a lie. They were lying to you, and they knew it was a lie. I don't know if it was just, like, optimistic. Like, yeah, we can make this look just like it does in the arcade on the N64. But, um, you know, like Donkey Kong Country and like Banjo-Kazooie after it, it was developed by Rare for Nintendo. And that's something that a lot of people don't even talk about these days. That Killer Instinct was a Nintendo IP. Full stop. It was a Nintendo IP. Fulgore and Spinal were major mascots of Nintendo, at least in the West, from 1994 to 2002. Maybe somewhere halfway through there, you started seeing Fulgore and Spinal a lot less. But... I'm I'm thinking back to that uh, statue that we know was like a- hanging around N-O- Nintendo of America until like at least the early 2000s yeah. of Donkey Kong, Dixie Kong, Baby Mario, Yoshi, and Fulgore, Fulgore yeah. <laughs> riding around in a in a classic car. Yeah, yeah. I think you start you like once Killer Instinct Gold came out and sort of underperformed. And then especially once Pokemon really caught on and and Pikachu and friends really became permanently imprinted in the Nintendo culture, you started to see the KI characters far less. Uh, but I would say from 95 to maybe around 97, they were ubiquitous with Nintendo of America, Nintendo in the West. They, they, they were right up there. Uh, in some in some cases, especially before Super Mario 64, they were more prominent than Mario as Nintendo mascots. And uh, yeah, uh, I I remember this one funny thing. This one funny thing that stands out happening with KI 2013, which was in, in game they used to have this sort of like a news feed that was. Essentially, just stuff they had posted on the website, re reframed in game, sort of like what Sea of Thieves does. Yeah, but it resulted in this like, okay, oh, it's like Ki's anniversary, and they use a giant picture of the box art 
that says only for Nintendo. <laughs> right. <laughs> and yeah, that that uh that Super Nintendo cartridge was black. It was a all black SNES cartridge. Just it's, like, it's a snazzy looking cartridge. I loved it, yeah. Um But the idea was that while Donkey Kong Country would add another year of life or so to the Super Nintendo, Killer Instinct would in turn appeal to sort of the older crowd, you know, uh teenagers, late teenagers, Gen Xers, uh who were pumping quarters into the Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter 2 machines of the era and then selling them on the concept of the Nintendo Ultra 64, which was due to arrive in 1995 at the time. So if if you love Killer Instinct, you'll have this exact experience in your home in 95. And in fact, they actually specifically promised this at the beginning of the arcade machine intro. Um, which let me play that for you really quick, because it is such a time capsule of insanity to hear this. Um, so just, just sit back. Imagine you are in 1995, you are in a, a noisy mall arcade when malls had arcades, when malls were a thing and you got your grubby pizza stained hands on killer instinct and this is what you would hear have a listen Yeah, that's that's surreal. Um, and Cameron, as you pointed out to me, that's three lies in one. Yeah, this is this is at least three lies in one. Um, so, like, po- point by point, um, obviously, uh, n- no, none of our listeners at home own a console called the Nintendo Ultra sixty four because. It didn't release under that name. It just released as the Nintendo 64. Yeah. Um, the original Killer Instinct never made it to the Nintendo 64 and instead received uh, the aforementioned Super Nintendo and Game Boy versions. I assume like the SNES version was kind of like a, a stopgap when they realized that there's no way this is making it to the N64 in 95. Yeah. So... Not only, not only was it not available for the Nintendo 64, it was available on things and not only on the Nintendo 64. No, on the Game Boy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and as mentioned, the N64 wouldn't launch until 1996. And Killer Instinct Gold, which was based on Killer Instinct 2, released that year. So it completely missed 95. Yeah. Yeah. All of that. Um my god my god like that would 
seriously peeve me off to this day were I a KI arcade plane fanatic who would hear that and have that drilled into me every single time I was playing it. And yet, as as, as like as hilariously untrue as it turned out to be, the biggest thing I lament about any like modern port of Killer Instinct, which the XP the XPLA port is very very good, it can't legally use that narration, no. and it feels like there's something missing without it because it's so iconic. It is. They even recreated it for the 2013 reveal. <laughs> yeah, that's that's sort of like similar to how they recreated the original Donkey Kong Country Play It Loud commercial when they announced that the the DKC trilogy and the Donkey Kong Land trilogy were coming to the the virtual console to the eShop and yeah, because it's because it's iconic and it just like it's takes right. you back to that moment in time. I have I have to admit, Cameron, I still lament losing the nintendo ultra 64 branding in the west i understand why they dropped it uh i wish japan would have adopted it because like if if they wanted a worldwide identity i think ultra is just a lot more kick-ass than nintendo 64 i i I mean killer instinct agrees with you (laughs) listen to chris sutherland shout ultra (laughs) at the top of his lungs that's where that came from ultra combos that is where they got ultra as like the the top tier combo because they were trying to tie in to the nintendo ultra 64 (laughs) 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 and of course like 95 is, is sort of my most nostalgic peak when i think about being a Nintendo fan, because not only did you have Donkey Kong Country reigning supreme, supplanting Mario in the mania as like Nintendo's top IP at the time. You had Donkey Kong Country 2 on its way. Uh, You had Killer Instinct in the arcades coming to the Super Nintendo. But you also had the promise of the Virtual Boy. Oh my God, the Virtual Boy is going to be the third pillar of Nintendo. And then you had the Nintendo Ultra 64 coming soon. So it, it was just like this this magical time and very quickly everything got taken away. It's like, oh yeah, now it's the Nintendo 64 uh, and and now the Virtual Boy is dead on arrival and, and now Mario is king again. Mm. Oh well. You, you kind of went from Chris Sutherland to John Lovitz there. <laughs> That's the way it feels going from Nintendo Ultra 64 to Nintendo 64. Mm. You know, it's just like, obviously Nintendo 64 is iconic and I don't know how much Ultra would translate around the world. But to me, you have, you have the, you have the super, you have the regular Nintendo Entertainment System slash Famicom. You have the Super Famicom or Super Nintendo. Then where do we go next? We go Ultra, baby. We go Ultra. I don't know. Just yeah. I wonder if they would have. I wonder if they would have run out of like adjectives <laughs> after the N sixty four. Yeah, maybe that's why they got off that train when they did, because then the GameCube is just going to suffer if you can't top Ultra. 
the, the godlike GameCube. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the God Slayer. Uh-huh. Nintendo God Slayer. <laughs> wow. And it's just this cute little box that you, with a little handle like a lunchbox. Yeah. What do, what do you got there, Timmy? The Nintendo God Slayer. It's, it's got a handle so I can beat you to death with it. <laughs> But, you know, Killer Instinct was always promoted by Nintendo of America. Because I don't... Did it even get a release in Japan? I, I don't know. I assume it maybe did, but I, I, this was very much driven by Nintendo of America. Uh, Howard Lincoln, Ken Lobb, in partnership with Rare, they, uh, you know, they, they wanted their own sort of Mortal Kombat Street Fighter killer that was purely Nintendo's. And Nintendo of America promoted it as this edgier, more mature use of the ACM technique during the height, the absolute pinnacle of the play it loud era in the, in the window before the Nintendo 64 launched. And of course, and it's maybe the perfect showcase of that kind of technology because like, Hey, what's a game we can make that um, keeps to a, keeps to a single gameplay screen and shows off an insane amount of character animation frames. Right. Yeah. Um, and and when I say like it was marketed towards a more mature crowd, keep in mind this was before enough time had passed that it was firmly established that the Donkey Kong Country series would also be for sexually mature adults. Um, that, that we would still enjoy it in adulthood, just as we did as kids. But I always remember feeling a bit competitive with Killer Instinct as a Donkey Kong Country fan, especially as 95 rolled along and the Super NES port was gearing to come out just a a couple of months before DKC2. Because I remember always feeling defensive of Donkey Kong Country whenever Nintendo Power would be heaping praise on Killer Instinct. I would be like, all right, all right, but but Donkey Kong Country, right? It's it's similar to the early days of DK Vine when we felt like we had to go up against the likes of RareNet, the, the firmly established Rare fan site on the internet. And RareNet, they were primarily about GoldenEye and Perfect Dark. You know, the the days when Rare's output was so wide and so diverse that Rare fandom would kind of get into this cold war with one another over, like, the the different properties. I'd say the GoldenEye and then later Perfect Dark in 2000 kind of supplanted Killer Instinct as that older marketed Rare IP in contrast to the DKU platformers like Donkey Kong, Banjo, Conker, you know... And it's it's funny to look at it, look back on it through that lens because there's so much of the same studios DNA through all of them. Like, like the the quote unquote mature game you're talking about has burp and fart jokes with Riptor. Sure, sure, <laughs> you know, but you don't you don't see that as a kid when you feel as a kid you're very defensive about not being viewed as just a kid. And so, therefore, your right. interests have to be on par with the older crowd's interest. And, and there is this kind of defensive thing about, well, it, no, it's not Kitty. It's not Kitty. And then I introduce a character called Kitty, and you're kind of left flat-footed. But <laughs> I think that, like, 
it, it's just silly to look back on now as an adult, you know, who who loves Donkey Kong, but also loves Rare. But yeah, I mean, it, it was much of the same thing. Uh, like once Killer Instinct 2 and Killer Instinct Gold came out in 96 and the series went into this hibernation for 17 years, then the FPS games, GoldenEye, Perfect Dark, that became sort of the rival to the DKU within Rare itself, like, viewed by the fandom, not the studio. But, you know, as time went on, that nonsense, that that competitive streak obviously faded, and we projected towards other things, like Mario. But Killer Instinct became one of those Rare franchises that we felt nostalgia for, even if we didn't have any true personal connection with it. Like I said, I owned Killer Instinct for the Super Nintendo, rented Killer Instinct Gold. I feel like it ended up being a franchise that, like, that, like, Ban- Banjo and Conker and Donkey Kong Country fans started to feel a kinship with because Killer Instinct fans were with us begging for sequels to Killer Instinct alongside us. Yeah. In fact, Killer Instinct 3 was one of those titles, those, like, legendary what-if titles that, that was bandied about so often from like the early 2000s to the release of Killer Instinct 2013 like it it was like almost a 13 14 15 year old year streak of of Killer Instinct 3 Killer Instinct 3 Killer Instinct 3 when are you going to show Killer Instinct 3 and, and Rare would make jokes about it like we have Saberman Stampede and some other titles that DK by but Killer Instinct 3 was right alongside that every E3 people would wonder if this was the year we would see Killer Instinct 3. The Killer Instinct connection to the DKU is is interesting because even though Killer Instinct 1 and 2, and by proxy Killer Instinct Gold, which is just Killer Instinct 2, but for the N64 with some other bells and whistles, but even though they were never part of the DKU, there have always been references to Killer Instinct in the DKU. And and I we made a list. And I don't know how comprehensive this list is. Because I'm sure we've missed something. Yeah, there's got to be something. Because there's, there's a lot. There's a lot, yeah. <laughs> and, and I feel like we need to first... Before we get into if Killer Instinct 2013 is DKU. We need to get into all of the ways the DKU has touched upon Killer Instinct leading up to it. Yeah, and uh, I would stress this is just um, this is just connections to the DKU before 2013. Otherwise, this would take even longer. Right. Like, I don't think we're going to get in a sea of thieves here. Or, ha- or hashtag IDRB. Right, right. I mean, we'll, we'll, t- we'll touch upon both later on. Uh, but this is just sort of how how the the two franchises have kind of brushed up alongside each other along their parallel routes. So, obviously, Donkey Kong Country 2 is what most people will think of if they're listening to the conversation. Because we have a freaking Killer Instinct machine, an arcade machine, in Cranky's Monkey Museum. But that's not all. We also have a poster on the opposite side of the Monkey Museum of Killer Instinct character Chief Thunder, just his render from the original Killer Instinct. 
And then you also have on the Crazy Kremlin map screen a big sign that says KI here above the uh, Crazy Kremlin yeah. arcade. And you look in the arcade, and if you squint, you'll see all of the machines in the arcade are just killer instinct machines. You get the impression that, like, in the world of Donkey Kong Country 2, Killer Instinct is sweep is just sweeping the world. Yeah, yeah. Because, like, Cran- Cranky, even one of, like, Cranky's random lines when you leave him is like, I'm gonna go play some rounds of Killer Instinct. Right. Yeah, I think he has another line where he complains about it in typical Cranky fashion. But it, it, it's, <laughs> it's funny because, you know, before we started to see a greater degree of cooperation between Nintendo and uh, Xbox in relation to their, you know, shared rare heritage by, you know, Banjo-Kazooie on NSO plus Expansion Pack, Banjo-Kazooie in Super Smash Bros. Ultimate, you would would have the Donkey Kong Country 2 like references to Killer Instinct um, on the the Wii U or the 3D, new 3DS. and again, should be stressed, both of these Nintendo franchises at this time, Nintendo owned IP. Right. Yeah. Um, so even even with that, like we had the in like sort of internal marketing render of TJ Combo, uh, Mario and Diddy together. <laughs> right. <laughs> by yeah. the rare logo. Yeah, where where TJ Combo <laughs> is actually holding Diddy up by his tail. I think Mario's hugging TJ Combo's leg. <laughs> And, and it's just, it's just like, what, <laughs> what was 1995? Because that was all normal all, to us. All, all your favorite characters. <laughs> but that was normal <laughs> to any Nintendo kid in 95. That's what right. I need to stress. In the era before Pokemon, in the era before the GameCube, before the buyout, before Animal Crossing and Splatoon, and, and before Fire Emblem came to the West, like, Banjo-Kazooie was a Nintendo franchise. Killer Instinct was the Nintendo franchise. Like, Rare, all of Rare's output made up, like, 40 to 60% of everything we thought of when it came to Nintendo. So, like, if you wonder why DK Vine seems as, like, so offbeat, so skewed in comparison to the rest of Nintendo fandom, it's because we are a product of this era, first and foremost. (laughs) But yeah, uh, you know, Rare's always has this like self-promotion streak in their games, and and you do get this impression that Killer Instinct is the only arcade game that matters at this time in 1995 on Crocodile Isle. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's 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 <laughs> funny, especially uh, like more funny in retrospect than it was at the time, because because it does seem like such an artifact. But a f- like, it just it just makes it even like more hilarious to me. As a result, like the the more it makes less sense as time goes on, you're like, okay, but sure, sure, I love it. Donkey Kong Land Three. This is something Matt and I just discussed uh, a few episodes back. It had the stage name Miller Instinct for one of the mill levels, which you know it, it's pretty on the nose, but cute. Diddy Kong Racing, yeah. you you probably want to speak to this, Cameron, uh, since you spent so much time uh, rendering a depiction of Star City. But Killer Instinct has a building in Star City, or excuse me, Diddy Kong Racing has a building in Star City with the KI logo on it. 
Yeah, if you uh, load up the Star Cityscape uh, skin on our form, I spent a lot of time drawing that KI logo. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, both games uh, had art handled by Kev Bayless, so like there's there's gonna there's a lot of I guess it's something we haven't really spoken to. There's a lot of staff overlap in the original uh, Killer Instinct one and two with the games that. DK Vine covers as its bread and butter. Yeah. Um, Chris Seaver, Chris Sutherland, Robin Beanland, Kev Bayless, um, Graham Norgate, uh, Grant Kirkup, their fingerprints are all over KI 1 and 2. Which is why it seems so silly in retrospect to think that as a Donkey Kong Country fan, I ever felt like Killer Instinct was this rival or, or, or something like like i said they're they're fraternal twin siblings the two franchises but you know you, you didn't think in terms of well chris sutherland's the announcer that's cool you know you, you it's <laughs> it it i'm sorry you're just reminding me of when when ukulele got announced and people were covering it i, I the thing that always sticks out in my mind is i think it was ign's video coverage of it going over like some of the people who worked at Platonic and they dropped the line and they even got the killer instinct announcer. <laughs> right. <laughs> As if that's all he's ever done. Not <laughs> Yeah, not 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 the programmer from <laughs> from the first two Donkey Kong countries and Banjo Kazooie. Yeah. The announcer <laughs> from Killer Instinct. He's a renaissance man. He he, he can do it all. <laughs> Um, you mentioned Chris Seaver. Well, speaking of Chris Seaver and Robin Beanland, uh, Conker plays Killer Instinct on his Game Boy in Conker's Bad Fur Day, which it's funny that that's a uniquely Killer Instinct GB reference, which is a game you never see brought up anywhere else in any other context. It's It's the one version of Killer Instinct, I guess, outside of... The SNES version. Yeah, the SNES and the Game Boy ports are the only ones you can't really play legally these days. And I, I get why, because it's it's Killer Instinct, but worse. Yeah, um, I, I do wish they would have maybe included Killer Instinct for the Super Nintendo on Rare Replay alongside Killer Instinct Gold. It would have just been nice to have them both, you know. Yeah, I, I get why they didn't, because they... I, Killer Instinct Gold was a very deliberate choice because they'd already made the like digital purchase bonuses of the arcade originals mm-hmm. for KI twenty thirteen and didn't want to step on the toes of that. Yeah, but and also Rare's own like thirty games while putting multiple versions of the same game kind of fudges the numbers. But it, it w- comprehensive comprehensiveness is nice yeah uh because the super nintendo one is the one i have spent the most time with so anyway but yeah the, the game boy one is just a real curiosity you know and it just yeah, that's what that's what conquers playing and um yeah um and that uh that comes back in live and reloaded but since they couldn't you legally use a game boy anymore they give conquer this like made up futuristic handheld but um which is weird because banjo still plays the game boy on the xbla version of banjo kazooie right yeah and they 
all they did like the model is still there i think all they did was maybe like maybe like i don't know if they altered the texture a bit because you can't see it like to remove a logo it would have been too low low pixel depth anyway to tell Mm -hmm. um all they did was remove the game boy startup noise from it yeah and uh Apparently, apparently, I, I think that Game Boy is just universally accepted as a thing you can homage now without like having to get it explicit permission from from Nintendo. Mm-hmm. Um, I just recently um, spent a spent a few minutes with the uh, Shredder's Revenge, and one of the animations is, in that game is Donatello playing a Game Boy <laughs> brick. Um. <laughs> The Shredder's Revenge take place in like the early nineties. It very well could. I ha- I mean, I haven't seen anything in that game yet that feels anachronistic to the nineties. I mean, there are VHS tapes in that game. Oh, nice, nice. Uh, it, it's very good. I would highly recommend it. Um, but to get back on track with the Conquer, yeah. Um, because they made up their own handheld. Um. This one has high fidelity audio, so you just get like straight audio rips from like KI two and KI one. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not even because again, Robin Beanland has his fingerprints all over both of these games. It's not even the only audio like tie-ins to Killer Instinct. Um, one that. One that I um, neglected to put in my show notes is um, they sort of share a, like, one of Jago's lines. I, I don't know if it's a rare employee or just a stock library sound effect, but they use it both when Conker's playing the Game Boy and when he's, uh, whenever a character's wielding the katana in multiplayer. Um, and a huge one that we only recently got the context for i say recent meaning 2015 <laughs> jesus um so uh the song from bad fur day bats which reappears in live and the reloaded it's the theme that plays when you're flying around as uh as conquer who's been tr- transformed into a vampire bat which which is one of my favorite robin beanland compositions Period. Oh, me, me too. One hundred percent. It's on my, uh, uh, it's on my Halloween playlist. That's how much I love it. <laughs> yeah, Robin Beanland does really good haunted house style music. Um, that and Tooth and Claw, which is Saber Wolf's theme from Killer Instinct One, are on my like Halloween standbys. Mm. But uh, yeah, it turns out. Uh, might be a reason why that kind of sounds like a killer instincty song um it's repurposed from as revealed in rare replay uh bloodlust which was meant to be the theme of a vampire character who was cut from killer instinct 2 at least we finally got a vampire Um, character in killer instinct 2013 yeah um mira she she is great i do I know in the lead up to her coming out, I'm like, was thinking in the back of my mind, are 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 they going to reference bats in her theme song? Like they, because in the first, in in 
the first two seasons and even season three, there are a lot of callbacks in the soundtrack to um, previous games. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the time, like whenever, like as a secret, like ambient track, they might like feed into like a classic KI theme, like Orchid's old theme or TJ Combo's old theme. Um, the Bat Rashes theme, like puts in the pause screen from Battletoads. Like you know, they might they might put it in there. It they didn't, but and I kind of lament that. But Mira's theme itself is original and very very good anyway, so yeah. it's not a big deal. And plus, you know, Conquer got it. Conquer used it. It's a Conquer song now. It, it might be too. Yeah, it might be too. I don't. I don't know. Too late to repurpose it for Killer Instinct, or repurpose it back for Killer Instinct. Yeah. By, by the way, soundtrack for Killer Instinct twenty three. 13 phenomenal um it very quickly ended up in my like music play rotation alongside like donkey kong country 2 that's why i'm glad i got the definitive edition because i i, I have <laughs> yeah. it in my game case um Th- three seasons of soundtrack and the ones for ki1 and 2 yeah yeah uh, grabbed by the ghoulies we talked about killer instinct 3 and how it became sort of a running joke well grabbed by the ghoulies actually had ki3 boxes that you could knock over in the in the game room, um, um alongside all these other uh, references, but yeah, but this is why you're not getting Ki three. It's because Baron von Gull got them all, bought all the copies that you know they released it for the Xbox. Well, all those games they released for the Xbox that first year of the the buyout in in at least the context of the DKU. It's incredible to see. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and even got the player's guide printed for Banjo Kazooie on Xbox. Yeah, wow. Uh, Viva Pina- the Viva Pinata franchise. Or Tui. The the Viva Pinata franchise had some references to Killer Instinct, right? Qu- quite a few. Um, surprisingly, it's not not a place I would think to look for them. Um, so, this is one I only discovered doing research. For this episode, so honestly, there might be more in the view of Pinata games that I just haven't encountered. Um, so, so a, a thing in Viva Pinata is that when you first get your garden, it's full of trash, and you have to clean it up. And of course, because this was rare at their peak, like self-deprecation to the point of maybe being a little bit concerned about their morale. <laughs> um, one of those pieces of trash is an arcade machine themed after Grab by the Ghoulies uh-huh. that you just find like half buried in the ground. And uh, that doesn't have an item description in the original Viva Pinata because it's just junk that you're meant to get rid of. But in the DS game, Viva Pinata Pocket Paradise... Um, that item has a description, and it's an old arcade machine that has lost its killer instinct. <laughs> it's not the first time we would see ghoulies in the trash in a rare game, either. Not the last time we would see it. I mean, yeah, it, it would be, um, no. be a re- reoccurring we, theme up until the Kinect era. We, we've seen it in the trash and Cooper in the toilet. So. <laughs> <laughs> Something... <laughs> And uh, yeah, the sequel uh, to, I guess, both of these games, uh, Viva Pinata Trouble in Paradise, um, had a couple Killer Instinct 
uh, tie-ins that I know of. Um, one of them was an accessory, which there are a lot of there are a lot of Banjo Kazooie accessories and like a like one or two Conquer accessories that are and a Mister Pants hat, but between both games that are pretty explicit. Um, this one kind of surprised me because it's something that KI twenty thirteen would get very 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 far away from. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's an accessory called the Thundercut. Which is modeled after uh, Thunder, then Chief Thunder's uh, mohawk from the original Killer Instinct, which is... I'm not actually sure how this mohawk works, because it's it's feathers. Yeah. Yeah. They, uh... <laughs> one, of the, one of those things they, uh, they, they quietly worked out in t- Killer Instinct 2013, where it's like, yeah, we're, we're not going to have that. We're not going to do that this time. And... And the other big thing to come out of Trouble in Paradise was um, this is we're doing a lot of like doing a lot of like very locked in a specific time coverage on this episode talking about Killer Instinct. But um, Viva Pinata Trouble in Paradise had interactivity with the Xbox Live Vision camera. Oh, not the Kinect. Keep in mind, not the Kinect. No, no. Xbox Live Vision camera, the predecessor to the Kinect. So yeah, um, Rare released a special series of Pinata Vision cards. Um, I say cards; they were images on the web. Mm-hmm. Um, that but that you could scan into the game and be rewarded. Um, I think they were meant to reward you with themed pinatas. I think some people were. Um, sometimes it would just give you items, but um, several of the cards were themed after Killer Instinct characters using renders from, I think, mostly KI2. Um, And this was funny to look back on because in the process of trying to dig up these old images, I would find clickbait articles saying, like, is Rare teasing the comeback of Killer Instinct? (laughs) (laughs) Because it got... Viva Pinata Trouble in Paradise Pinata Vision cards that when scanned in were meant to reward you with pinatas that were like thematically in the ballpark mm-hmm. of the character on the card. Yeah. And uh, it should be stressed like Banjo, like they weren't the other only rare franchise to do this with. Banjo got cards too. Um, and we later find out that. They cheekily in the background hid like Banjo Kazooie development art in the backgrounds of those cards. Yeah. Um, so yeah, a very a very strange um, sort of resurgence of o- old Killer Instinct renders. Right, because yeah, briefly around the time of Viva Pinata, the, the the whole the whole chunk of Viva Pinata games, Killer Instinct was kind of at its like lowest, like ebb as far as cultural relevance goes like it, it it was so far removed at that point like more than a decade since the last killer instinct and it was just like i think like hope for a ki3 was fading uh not completely extinguished because these things never are and even now like 10 years doesn't seem that long but back then 10 years was an incredibly long time 
Uh, but you mentioned Banjo and Kazooie, and Banjo Kazooie Nuts and Bolts also referenced Killer Instinct quite a bit. Um, yeah, this one's kind of a blowout. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like Nuts and Bolts was a lot of ways a blowout because there was this mood during Nuts and Bolts development where, like, well, if this doesn't work, if this doesn't sell, this is it for us. We're done. And and so they were getting a lot of it out of their system while they still could. Uh, <laughs> thankfully, that wasn't the case. You know, things eventually evolved to where they are today. But yeah, Nuts and Bolts almost felt like this Viking funeral where they're just setting everything on fire. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. so we had the... Sin- Cinder, one of the things not referenced in Nuts and Bolts, I don't think. Yeah. Uh, Tusk, though, speaking of Vikings, Tusk is in there. Uh, we had the Fulgore's Fist vehicle part, which, uh, you know, it's funny because Fulgore is, is one of those characters who was so ubiquitous uh, in the, the contemporary time of Killer Instinct, but was mostly like, I don't know, like cast aside in, in like the nostalgia of killer instinct um it's it's interesting because killer instinct is a franchise that i don't feel like has like it doesn't have a ryu yeah or a or a scorpion like i feel like most of its cast are on a fairly even keel with each other because they'd kind of trade off how prominently they used them in promotion yeah but if it did have a face it is definitely fulgore yeah um He's on the Super Nintendo box. He's on the Ki Gold box. Um, no, I yeah. What about Spinal? Um, Spinal is right up there, though. Right, exactly. Yeah. Like, there's no like clean. Like, there's always an argument to be to be had. Like, who is the face? I mean, if you wanted to even like, if you wanted to go like just straight up, well, like, okay, who's the who's the Ryu? Who's the like? T- the Akira, the Terry Bogart, the Scorpion for for Killer Instinct, it would be Jago, yeah. but nobody cares about Jago. Nobody cares about Jago. <laughs> oh, my favorite CBS sitcom. <laughs> I, I like Jago, but he's he's just he's not I don't think he's prominent in the branding of Killer Instinct at all. And it feels like Jago is just like kind of an afterthought like we need this type of character we need this archetype in there and and so that we got jago you know and jago's fine but it's just like he he's basically like Liu kang ryu if if i don't know all personality was yeah, removed yeah. Lu- from him. i said scorpion but Liu kang is the better yeah. it's just your, your your vague martial arts clan member <laughs> whatever yeah yeah also, nuts and bolts. There was the uh, the ultra combo achievement. Er, the well, it's an ultimate combo. Ultimate combo, yeah. Achievement, which is a double joke because the way you get that achievement is by rounding up a bunch of ultimate play the game references ah. that are in Terrarium of Terror. Um, there's another. Pun along the same caliber of Miller Instinct, but even more tortured, um, which is in like a background joke at the at the end of the game when you see Log's factory, the interior, there are a bunch of joke names of games on the wall that are meant to be either 
either fake sequels or like kind of like tongue in cheek, like things where it could do like Bash Buddies, a, a Smash Brothers ripoff. Um, one of them is a game with Humba Wumba on the cover called uh, Cake Filler Instinct. <laughs> Which what? With a very like with a very with like a knife style logo in the in the style of Killer Instinct's logo. Yeah, that I guess it's like a, a cooking game title. I know, Cake Filler Instinct sounds like something that is randomly pulled up from Netflix's algorithm, and you're like, what the hell is this? I'm not going to watch this. What is it? A show about cake filling? What? No. Um, it. I, I, think, I think my favorite reference in Nuts and Bolts is that Jolly Dodger... Who Jolly Roger, who in his kind of um, <laughs> Oliver Twist style reimagining as this this shifty street criminal, uh, is selling illicit copies of Killer Instinct Three from his briefcase. Yeah, he has like a little cute little animation. He'll open his briefcase and just like sh- show you like enticingly that he's got. It's just lined with copies of Ki Three, right? Which you know, what 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 even is that? Is that just did he did he like burn Killer Instinct gold on a on a disc or something? And is he trying to like pass it off? Like, but yeah, that's that's the again another another knowing reference to Killer Instinct Three. Like, yeah, we're not making it, we're not making it, but we're gonna torture you with it. Yeah, and uh, the. The last one on this list that we were able to compile is my favorite reference in Nuts and Bolts, which is, so in Nuts and Bolts, a log will give you tips on the loading screens, which is actually unfortunately lost in modern, uh, in uh, the modern way you can play Banjo-Kazooie Nuts and Bolts on Series X because it just skips past the loading times. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, one of Log's tips is, and I quote, <clears throat> If you're still struggling after all these hints, time to follow Uncle Tusk's old adage and stop being so rubbish. Yeah, that's a that's a surprising reference because it's a very specific reference to Rare's classic website, um, which I guess was still operational at this time, but uh, the, the Rare Wear, Rare Wear, uh, which, which was, you know, a clever pun. Um, but would you believe Lee Loveday did some writing on uh, Banjo Kazooie Nuts and Bolts? Just a bit, just a bit. But it all, and it feels like there at that point, yeah, it's just like the only people pl- that are going to play this are diehard rare fans who wrote in describes. So what the hell? Why the hell not? And I, I guess if you don't get this joke, you might think like, like Lee just made up some generic uncle, mm-hmm. like like when. Like like Homestar Runner saying like stupid Uncle Egg or something, but no, just, no, just an just an older relative. Yeah, but but, but yeah, it, Uncle Tusk was uh, the the kind of um, advice column on Rare's website, and instead of creating a brand it, new character like Mister Pants, who is the survey taker on the website. Lee took just randomly pulled the Killer Instinct two character Tusk and, and reimagined him as this this grumpy columnist uh, who, who gave you yeah, terrible I mean, the, advice. 
the joke was, I mean, the URL of his page was called was slash agony ant. Yes. Um, it, it was basically like giving you a Dear Abby style co- column, but the person fielding your questions with was this grumpy hair trigger barbarian right bloodthirsty yeah and and so like hey how do i do this in this game and then they would just insult you really uh which was great Uh, i didn't write into uncle tusk often uh i was more of a scribes kid but uh uncle tusk was always a pleasure to read and it made you like like the character of tusk by imagining him in in this light uh even if you weren't a fan of killer instinct or killer instinct 2 it even it ended up like having some of its own like weird weird lore chains mm-hmm. of like one one of the I think two of the endings in Killer Instinct two end with Tusk and Maya as a couple, yeah. and there's like one or two level letters in Uncle Tusk where he he just mentions offhand like Maya's doing some doing some training with TJ Combo. It's weird that like. She's so worn out the next day and not back. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Kids would read this website, by the way. Uh, And and this is why we were such fans of of the classic Rare website. And by proxy, Lee Loveday, because he never talked down to you. I mean, he he would insult you, but he would never talk down to you. And it, it just felt like sublime to have this kind of relationship with a major game studio. And um, like I, Uncle Tusk was a little bit before my time, but I like read through the, ended up reading through the archives mm-hmm. of it after the fact. And I ended up loving it so much that I named a, named a pet in Sea of Thieves after uh and a running joke in Uncle Tusk um, about him having a geriatric sickly cat named Sniffles. <laughs> and I, I think it kind of became like a reader pass a story where people would give periodic updates on the status of Sniffles. Yeah. Like, like just off the top of my head, um, Tusk left him at the vet for over 14 years. And they threatened to put him in the, like, send him to the county dump if they, if he didn't pick up the cat. Um, the cat, um, just, just, just off, the top, off the top of my head, things that happened to Sniffles, um, got sent to a dump, um, attempted to be crushed in a trash compactor, um, attempted to be destroyed with a bomb, um, not killed by the bomb and instead irradiated into a giant kaiju, um, butting off smaller um, Sniffles clones that then rampage through the countryside um, and gaining sentience. Yeah. And de- writing a letter himself describing that he was slowly reverting back to a normal cat. Right. And, y- and you took that and you made it your canonical Sea of Thieves pet to uh, Rage and Regal. Yep. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I I have Sniffles, who is definitely the same Sniffles, and don't you dare tell me otherwise. Um, because honestly, being being sent back in time to the golden age of piracy on the on the low end of ridiculous things that could have happened to Sniffles, right? 
I, I feel like you saw what I was doing with the Pepito Kong, and you're like, all right, hold my beer. <laughs> hold hold my geriatric cat. Uh, so, what is the debate around Killer Instinct 2013? We've spent a long time now discussing how Killer Instinct has run parallel to the DKU and has been referenced by the DKU. But what is the actual debate around the quasi-reboot Killer Instinct, parentheses 2013? Well, it all centers on the appearance of Rash the Battletoad. Now, before you jump all over me, I know Rash the Battletoad appearing in Killer Instinct 2013 would not, in and of itself, make it DKU. Obviously, it wouldn't, because it would already be DKU, and and we wouldn't be having this episode because Battletoads 2020, the only reason we consider it DKU is because it has a in the flesh or I guess not in, in the lack of flesh appearance by Sea of Thieves Captain Bones, who is a canonical character in Sea of Thieves and has appeared in Sea of Thieves in both the credits and in A Pirate's Life. But... Rash and the Battletoads didn't have a DKU appearance, uh, at least as far as, like, outside of stuff like IDARB, until Battletoads 2020. So Rash, in and of itself, wouldn't make the game DKU. Rash was added in a preliminary test manner for those who had Rare Replay in August 2015 when Rare Replay was released and was fully added with Season 3 on March 29th, 2016. So this is an interesting caveat, because we keep calling Killer Instinct 2013, but from a DKU perspective, it wouldn't have been DKU until March 29th, 2016. So that's where we would add it on our games page if we do rule it to be DKU. But anyway, among the accessories that Rash the Battletoad can wear. Outside of, like, his different color variants, um, you've, you've got, in Killer Instinct 2013, you've got the regular outfit, and you've got the retro appearance of a character that, in many ways, will harken back to the style of the original two Killer Instinct games. In some cases, very spot-on. In some cases, uh, like Thunder, they they do more of a harkening back to the era and time rather than the actual character appearance. Yeah, you you can kind of fudge accessories, mix and matching with him a little bit to look more like the original, but it's it by design, that's not what it's meant to do. Right, they, they wanted to go with a more uh, tasteful representation of an indigenous American versus um, sort of the more cartoony stereotype they were going for in the first K.I., but um, with, with characters who weren't in either two games, they do a, a throwback appearance that what would they have looked like if they were part of the cast in those two games, which is really cool. I, I kind of – it's just worth like yeah. checking out to see what all the retro costumes are. And for yeah, they even uh, recruited Kev Bayless to do at least a couple of them. I which think, is, like Hisako. Which is uh, amazing and refreshing that they have that authenticity – you know, in it. But uh, for for Rash, they really just make him look more like he does in the actual Battletoads games uh, for his retro appearance. Because his uh, in-game appearance is a hyper-realistic rendition 
of a battle toad, which uh, a humanoid toad. I mean, it, it, yeah, um, they they I remember when this happened, when they like launched the early preview of Rash, they they debuted Rash and Killer Instinct using the retro costume. Uh-huh. And I think people got a little freaked out seeing the like actual default for him. <laughs> <laughs> the, this like very very realistically textured um toad man it reminds me of those kind of like horrific images that are designed to creep you out like what would a pokemon look like in real life and and it, it just it's just something like utter, utterly mortifying but like a creepypasta kind of thing but yeah, so, so you got the retro color scheme of rash and so the retro color scheme and the modern current uh design they each have their own accessories they can wear like uh, a little hat or a little garnish that that like really sets them apart and you you can add your usually they're like a three-part matching set but you can mix and match elements right so you can kind of add your own personality your own uh sense of self to the characters um so with, with the retro colors or retro design of rash uh, there are three different accessory sets that are available to him. There are the princely accessories, so you can do kind of like a frog prince thing with with Rash. Uh, there are the groovy accessories, makes makes him look like uh, a seventies dude, you know, with with like an afro and like you know, disco fever. And then you've got the rareware accessories and i should point out that rareware is a clever pun here as well but not the one we're used to with the rareware site which was rare where like rare place where like w-h-e-r-e this is rare where like i am wearing something uh, i just love that you can have multiple puns based on the old rareware branding but the rare wear accessories include a conquer hood, which is just conquer's head. It looks like it's swallowing Rash's head. Yeah, yeah you you might think like this is you know, oh, a conquer hood. That's conquer's sweatshirt. No, it's conquer's entire head. Conquer's entire head swallowing up Rash. Um, there there are banjo shorts, which are just banjo shorts, very authentic. We know Banjo is always leaving pairs of shorts behind based on ukulele and a crackle stone. So this is not surprising that Rash would be able to get a pair of them. There is a Jiggy tattoo, which I think comes with the Banjo shorts. I'm not sure if that's the Banjo shorts or part of the backpack because I've never I think it. Set. I think it comes with the backpack, okay. but I'm not 100% on that. I've never actually it, it, like mixed them. It's not a separate part. No. It's like included with either the shorts or the backpack. Yeah, but, but a Jiggy tattoo and a backpack. And you might be thinking the backpack, it's obviously Banjo's backpack. You've got the shorts, you've got a Jiggy tattoo. Why wouldn't it just be Banjo's backpack? But no, no. Banjo's backpack, it may supposed to be in like intent, like Rash is wearing Banjo's backpack, but in reality, the backpack is the head of the Lord of Games from off of Banjo Kazooie Nuts and Bolts. It's it's his little mon like computer monitor head. Uh and, and it, it is on actually. Now now it it does appear to be off 
at times during gameplay. But um, when when you just stare at it, you you see it you see it like the Lord of Games is staring back at you. And he's got a smug little smirk. Smug little smirk. That log. Now, <laughs> so of course the question is: Is this actually the Lord of Games, or is this just a backpack designed to look like the Lord of Games? And yes, we have had this debate before. This has come up on past Tribunal episodes. I realize that. And I realize where I stood before. Where, where I stood before was erring on the side of caution and refusing to classify this as a full-fledged appearance by log because we didn't know. And why did I feel like we didn't know? Well, simple. DK Vine's Twitter account, which I didn't run back then, uh, had reached out to Iron Galaxy asking if it was indeed the real Lord of Games. Now, unlike vintage Lee Loveday, or maybe contemporary Platonic, they didn't know how to play our reindeer games. Or they probably, more accurately, wisely thought better of it and ignored us. As any professional company probably would. But since we had no word of God in this circumstance, we, we didn't get any word of God from Iron Galaxy or in this case, a word on log, we chose to leave it open-ended and thus not a confirmed appearance because I know I might have a reputation among some people to be full of bullshit, to be a nonsensical, whimsical man-child who, who wants to say, this is part of the DKU. That's part of the DKU. Oh, isn't it fun? <laughs> but I take it seriously, Cameron. I take it deadly seriously. And I don't mess around with this. I really don't. And I would rather say a game is not part of the DKU than say, sure, the more the merrier, if we don't have enough to go off of. This is imp- like th- this is very important to me, like the integrity of the DKU. So I somewhat controversially shut the book on this. I said, nope, we don't have word of God. We can't make a ruling on this. And this is partly because we've been down this dusty road before. Oh, yes, we have to nearly heartbreaking results. Let's rewind a bit back to the days of Viva Pinata. Now, when Viva Pinata came out, it was one of the most flagrantly should-be DKU games we've ever seen. Right? Right? Those, those, those cases where clearly this is shouting out, I take place in the same shared universe as Banjo-Kazooie, as Conker, by extension, but we're not going to mention it, Donkey Kong. I am part of this shared universe, but... DK Vine is very strict with this because the DKU is as fragmented as it is because there is no overseeing figure pushing this shared universe and it's up to us to make sense of it. We can't say a game is actually part of the shared universe unless we have a physical character appearance. That is the thing that pushes it over the edge. Otherwise, these are just references that could possibly be disregarded or ignored. Now, Viva Pinata, we were looking long and hard. This is when Ozzy Ben uh, was 
really pushing for Viva Pinata to be DKU. Uh, vintage DK Vine staffer Ben Cosmina. Uh, and, and he he really wanted it to be DKU probably more so than any of us. And there there were some contested times on the DK Vine forum back then. Let me tell you. I I remember it being briefly rebranded as Aussie Ben Universe. <laughs> <laughs> Things got so heated. So we th- we thought we might have an in when we caught wind of the Peribo house in Viva Piñata because the Peribo house that you can get for your garden features grabbed by the Ghoulies character, beloved icon, by the way, Mr. Ribs, the skeleton chef assistant boy. Uh, it features him stuck in the ground holding up the Peribo house, which in its of itself is a, like a treasure chest. So this was our first argument that Viva Pinata could be DKU if this was an actual appearance by the Grab by the Ghoulies character, Mr. Ribs, if he had been partially buried on Pinata Island and now his fate was holding up this, uh, this Peribo house. A dark fate for such a beloved character, but we were willing to sacrifice Mr. Ribs on the altar of having Vivi Pinata be part of the DKU. So we asked Lee Loveday, who at that time was our really only direct connection to Rare. Like, like if you wanted any answers out of Rare, this, this is pre-Twitter, so you had to go through Lee Loveday. He was the mouth of Twycross. And Lee said no. He just flatly shut it down and said, no, that's not Mr. Ribs. That's just a, a statue made to look like Mr. Ribs. That was, that, that was a heartbreaking day, Cameron. I could feel like... I, I could yeah, feel my every, heart... Sh- everybody was so... Everybody was so disappointed that a beloved character might, like Mr. Ribs wasn't trapped forever as a birdhouse. My heart shattered into a million pieces <laughs> that day. And so for the briefest, and I mean briefest of times, we had to say that Viva Pinata was not part of the DKU. It just heavily referenced the DKU, just as the DKU would heavily reference Killer Instinct. And, and th- like I said, despite the Viva Pinata being one of the most flagrantly DKU games ever made, like, outside of having Donkey Kong or Banjo and Kazooie in your game, I don't see how any other game could just scream, I am DKU as much as Viva Pinata did. But we didn't have any physical character appearances. But thankfully, Lee later said, and it wasn't too long after this that he said this, that the goldfish swimming in the bowl atop Miss Petulia's head was actually Banjo's pet goldfish Royston. In a pinata disguise, <laughs> and which this this seems like a direct like throwing you a bone, really, to get to get you to stop agonizing over this. But it's funny because this, in turn, led to the the running joke of Royston because because Royston first appeared outside of the Banjo Kazooie series in Grab by the Ghoulies as a um as a little little Easter egg in in the uh, the fishbowl in the classroom of Ghoulhaven Hall. And um, that's what canonized Grabbed by the Ghoulies. And so uh, when Lee was like, yeah, no, actually, this is Royston disguising himself as this piñata, which was actually just an unused piñata from the game. 
uh, that they stuck in as an Easter egg atop Miss Petulia's head. But they uh, this this led to the running joke of Royston being this like frequent cameo and reference point. Uh, of course, he would later appear in Connect Sports Season Two DLC, and of course, Ukulele. But this is really where that got going, and we we're like, no, this is going to be a reoccurring thing. Royston as a cameo. So that whole ard- ordeal, Cameron, uh, of Mr. Ribs holding up the Peribo house. And I say it's an ordeal. Like that is, that is the epitome of a first world problem right there. But it taught us not to make assumptions about otherwise inanimate objects in games that could plausibly be the character just appearing inert. And because of that, because that precedent was established, we've never jumped on log in Killer Instinct 2013 because we never felt like we could make a definitive ruling after Lee schooled us so hard on Mr. Ribs. Yeah, it's... I I kind of regret that we sat on the fence about it so long because, like, nervous to make the same mistake twice that... We basically miss like the entire news cycle of, or, or well, like, life cycle of KI twenty thirteen from then on out. Um, and I mean, I was I was guilty of this too. Um, something I was like kind of hedging my bets on was, well, okay, we're not going to get an answer on the the log thing one way or the other, but um, in twenty sixteen, Iron Galaxy sent out a survey um with the like that made it made it very very much look like they planned to like continue development on killer instinct for quite a long while yet to come mm-hmm. and you know su- support would dry up for the game a, like a couple years later but um specifically they were asking the question um they they get they gave you a list like who which of these characters would you like to see in Killer Instinct and it would be some some of the characters were other like Microsoft crossover characters some of them were um creatures or archetypes like uh love like Lovecraftian magic archer um Wendigo Jin mm-hmm. Um, but also among them was Joanna Dark. (laughs) And below that, there was, is there a Killer Instinct character you really want to play that wasn't listed above? And I tried to briefly rally the DK Vine troops to say, like, well, we need to figure out a DKU character and write them in. Um, uh, unfortunately, that did not pan out like the Smash Ballad. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. Well, also, I don't. I think it would be a little bit harder to to rally a worldwide ma- a mass of fans uh, to get behind Baron von Gul or, or so, you know something. In comparison yeah, to it was. Yeah, an issue we ran into trying to trying to pitch this is at that point. Like, obviously, now that Sea of Thieves is around, the the pool of humanoid characters <laughs> right. in the DKU is a lot. <laughs> stronger whereas before we were like trying to re- figure out somebody to rally around on like uh 
Like, I think the be- the one that got the most consensus was Conquer. I don't even know how Conquer just, would work in Killer Instinct. Like, yeah, it, it's he. You'd still have the problem of he. He's he's like slightly above average squirrel sized. He's not. <laughs> He's not like short human size. Right, because if, if you go the hyper-realistic route with Conker, then he's just a, a, a red squirrel maybe in like a a crown or something. And he, what, he would just like scratch your face? Like, <laughs> like it, it just happened to be like we... And any like of anybody else, it was either like the character's style doesn't fit or they're not popular enough or, or they're not tonally appropriate. Right. Like... Banjo was thrown around, but he doesn't really. R- Rash fits the tone better than Banjo and Kazooie. Absolutely, and, and like you, you can say like you can plausibly say Killer Instinct 2013 is in the same shared universe as Banjo Kazooie, Conquer, Donkey Kong Country, but that doesn't mean that a character would feel right being presented in that context. And that's that's like same thing with Sea of Thieves. Like there there are boundaries that you shouldn't cross, even if you could say, well, yes, they do exist in the same shared universe. But that doesn't mean we ever want to see Bottles the Mole standing side by side with Jago, or you know, it's just TJ Combo. <laughs> like yeah, TJ Combo can hold Diddy Kong up by its tail in promotional artwork, yeah. but yeah. Yeah, sorry, sorry, Banjo. Bottles is dead again because Shadow Jago ultimated him. <laughs> uh, so what's changed? Why are we doing this again? I, I said at the onset of season 10 of the conversation that we would be revisiting some of these cases. Some of these cases that have long bedeviled the conversation audience, the DK Vine community. That that people felt like we didn't make a fair ruling on, and with Saberwolf GBA, that what changed was the MCU showed me that you know my way of thinking on on the subject of reimagining characters within the DKU um, could could be updated for for modern times. So that that was why we revisited Saberwolf GB. I don't just change the rules willy-nilly. I see Gibbon in the live stream yelling at me that I need to change the DKU rules. I still think it's the fairest way to go about it. And and I know you're going to disagree with me, but I have to be extremely lower C conservative when it comes to the DKU. Um, but... What changed with Killer Instinct 2013? Was it the MCU showing me a different way? No, it was actually the DKU itself. What got the ball rolling for this in my brain was actually what happened with 2019's Bleeding Edge, which was an Xbox game that I don't think ever found the audience they they were hoping for it. Um, we we we. It definitely didn't because uh, I'm not even sure you can play it now. Oh, really? Um, I think it. I mean, I think it's still available, but it's not getting active updates. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, well, in, in 2019's Bleeding Edge, they added an accessory to the game called the Gold Border. Now, let me explain. This was another case of an inanimate object 
taking on the appearance of a DKU character, like Log's Backpack, or arguably like the Mr. Ribs Peribo House. But in this case, there was enough in-universe context to make a definitive ruling sans word of God. Because here's what the gold border was. It was a hoverboard with Sea of Thieves gold hoarder's skull uh, on the front of it, adorning it like some sort of hood ornament, right? Now, yeah, I would say hood ornament, even though a board doesn't have a hood. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so Bleeding Edge is this futuristic game. It takes place in 2055, I believe. And, and you know, combatants ride around on hoverboards fighting each other. And anyway, you have this gold border, which is, I think, only available for a week or so in Bleeding Edge. If you, if you had, like... Sea of Thieves or something, and I I forget the actual mechanism for unlocking it, but it required me to very quickly get Bleeding Edge, install it, and and get the gold border. But uh, because the gold border has this gold hoarder head on it, here's what we know about skellies in Sea of Thieves. Some semblance of consciousness rattles around in skelly heads after they've been decapitated in Sea of Thieves. You take them to the Order of Souls, and they get the memories out of the, the skulls. And, you know, we, we've had this debate with uh, people who are actually work on Sea of Thieves, where, you know, they, they've never clarified what actually uh, is defined as this consciousness in the skulls. Uh, you can interpret it as maybe the soul, because it does glow green like the afterlife energies do in Sea of Thieves. Um, you could just say it's... And honestly, fair for not clarifying, because why explicitly write yourself into a corner when you don't have right. to? Um, you could just say they're, they're memories, but I, 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 I don't know. I, I think because you had that green glow... You can indeed say that it is the gold hoarder's head in the year 2055 strapped on a hoverboard and his soul or some iota of his self is still in there counting as a full-fledged character appearance. And I I realize that's bordering dangerously close on debating some heavy philosophical issues on what constitutes self, but, you know... Uh, I, I think that it perfectly lines up with Sea of Thieves canon, especially because uh, Sea of Thieves introduced the mutinous fist faction of pirates at the exact same time, which in-universe is where the Bleeding Edge gang would have taken their inspiration and their insignia from. So the door kind of swang both ways very quickly, giving credence to the gold border being the gold hoarder in the future via strong in-universe link. So... I think it also helps that, like, I'm more inclined to want to make this connection than I was would have been with Mr. Ribs, because um, unlike Mr. Ribs, where I'd lament that this very, like, sweet, um, innocent character met such a horrible fate, uh, Gold is an asshole. Right. So him being used as the decorative mounting on a hoverboard for somebody to do sweep jumps on <laughs> is uh, a bit funnier. It is. It is. It's a, it's a funny fate and it's a fun, like we don't, we don't have many glimpses of 
what may befall the Sea of Thieves characters post because Sea of Thieves takes place in the past, right? The past of the DKU. So we we don't have many ideas of what may happen to any of these characters. Uh so I just like that we have this one confirmation that yeah, this is this is the gold hoarder's ultimate fate. Uh maybe he can reconstitute himself one day, but at least in 20 uh, 2055 he is a decorative hood ornament on a hoverboard. Like that's 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 pretty funny and I like that. <laughs> So, Bleeding Edge wasn't a controversial thing. Like, uh, Jeff brought it to my attention. I was like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Of course that's what that is. And and so, post-Bleeding Edge, I think we slightly have more confidence to look at an inanimate object that clearly has magical properties, study in-universe evidence and the character's own modus operandi, and use our expertise to make a ruling. So, Cameron, the question then becomes, what exactly do we know about the Lord of Games that would then inform our opinion on this backpack that Rash is wearing yeah. in Florence in 2013? It, it's very interesting that we keep getting these situations involving characters where it is actually very plausible that they could exist as just an inanimate head. <laughs> And this is the thing. Like, I feel like this could only like, happen to us, to our fandom. Like we're not having we're not having this argument about the Conquer Hood. No, because no, like, that's clearly that's... not Conquer. But we have <laughs> enough characters that could, like you said, plausibly just be decapitated heads or in, inanimate like representations of themselves. That it's just like, yeah, I, I, I guess we have to have this debate now. Oh, I don't see Mario <laughs> Wiki having this problem with anybody. All right, so Steve McCorkle from Off of Rare Gamer was actually going to be on this episode with us. We were all set to go. Unfortunately, an emergency came up and he had to bow out at the last moment. But uh, before he did so, he kindly provided us with his thoughts on this matter. And I'm going to read that to you verbatim now. Uh, I'm not going to do Steve's voice. Uh, I'm going to read it as myself, but just imagine Steve saying all of this. Of all of Rare's games, the trinity of Conquer, Banjo, and Killer Instinct seem to be where the Lord of Games eschews his disguise and is able to interact directly with the inhabitants. With Grabbed by the Ghoulies, we know that the Lord of Games is present, but chooses to take on the guise of Fiddlesworth to remain in-universe. It's a guarded way that he prevents the residents of that universe from realizing that they, in fact, are a part of a video game simulation. But with Banjo, Conquer, and Killer Instinct, we have their universes both actively involved with each other, Conquer plays Killer Instinct, Game Boy games, Full Wars Fist as a vehicle part in Nuts and Bolts, all of their accessories seen in Viva Piñata, etc., I believe that the coder from Conquer's Bad Fur Day and laterally live and reloaded is a manifestation of Log, and given that Conquer interacts with him when the game locks up, seems to be an occurrence that is both a part of the reality of that universe and a common one enough that Conquer knows enough to reach out and request restoration. It would therefore seem logical that Log was first was seen first in Conquer's universe 
where the inhabitants already have a relationship with him, whereas Nuts and Bolts would have been the first time that Banjo, Kazooie, and Gruntilda were made aware of Log's presence. Now, we have Killer Instinct, where Log is just starting to get comfortable enough with that universe that he can start making appearances. Once the Killer Instinct fighters have become familiar with Log's appearance, he will begin to reach out to them as well, making himself known to them and bringing about the revelations that their entire existence is a simulation. Not exactly light fare that you want to rush into all at once. While we have seen hints here and there, like TJ Combo lifting up an arcade cabinet of the game he's meant to be in, now is a time where Log is going to make a formal introduction to not only his existence, but to the shared universes of Conquer, a banjo, and potentially even titles like Viva Pinata. To what end is this unmasking meant to signify? Perhaps it's to allow Log to expand his dominion from the bubble dimension of Showdown Town and create in its stead a Showdown Universe, one in which all characters are aware of the simulation they share, all aware of Log and his rule, and watching as his domain slowly starts to encroach onto other rare titles, other multiverses, and perhaps even our own. Also, on the topic of the Lord of Games using disguises, it's entirely possible that he was anything from the Orange Jinjo in Bubble Gloop Swamp to Datadine Soldier number 52 in Perfect Dark. I think that he would actively participate in his games just to see how they play. PPS Given the art style of It's Mr. Pants, I can guarantee that it was created by Log after a week-long bender in Conquer's universe. It's just that when he came to his senses and considered deleting it, he saw he <laughs> saw the naive innocence one can only glimpse from a man in his underpants with a bowler hat and decided against it. Without even knowing it, Mr. Pants saved his own world again. And Steve kind of went off on his own there. And, you know, if he were here with us right now, I think this would be a four to five hour long episode as we debate the various points he brought up. But (laughs) thank you, Steve, for your valuable insight. Um, Cameron, Steve brought up Log revealing that he posed as Fiddlesworth during Grabbed by the Ghoulies. Now... I don't know how you feel about this matter. This is this is a controversial point because as I often argue, this does not mean that the character Fiddlesworth Dunfiddlin doesn't actually exist. This doesn't mean that 95% 95% of Fiddlesworth appearances in Grab by the Ghoulies aren't valid appearances by Fiddlesworth. It just means that at one indeterminate point in the game, it was the Lord of Games posing as Fiddlesworth, retroactively making that his earliest confirmed appearance in a video game. Yeah, it's uh, it's like, you know that one thing in the Snyder Cut that, of Justice League that everybody hates, <laughs> where uh, Martha Kent turns out to be Martian Manhunter? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't mean she was Martian Manhunter throughout all of Clark Kent's right, life. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> just just in that one scene to undermine the entire point of it. Yeah, because the lo- the Lord <laughs> of Games likes to check in on the events of video games. And and nuts and bolts like Steve brought up from Steve's perspective because Steve knows what the DKU is. He humors our uh our 
belief or philosophical understanding of it, but it seems like Steve ascribes to more of a rare multiverse than a shared universe. I think Sea of Thieves dispels of that notion and says, no, it's all a shared universe, but I digress. Uh, Steve's going to Steve, Heil's going to Heil, Cameron's going to be in the middle, but I think that... I was genuinely about to say there's argument that could go either way. <laughs> so you you you've got my number. At the very least, we we can agree that the Lord of Games is this uh, unifying element that that could unite everything. Um, like nuts and bolts imply that the Lord of Games reach extends outside of rare. We see what is plausibly supposed to be Peach's castle in the distance of Showdown Town. So you know. Theoretically, the Lord of Games could actually appear in every single video game under the sun, um, like in disguise at some point in time. He's just not allowed to legally mention them for some reason. <laughs> right. It's just all we have to go off of as far as canonical Lord of Games appearances are nuts and bolts retroactively grabbed by the ghoulies. At some point, he's Fiddlesworth in that game. And I think, I forget what he says in nuts and bolts what fiddlesworthism he he uh he lets out that maybe you could tie back into grab by the ghoulies to say that's the point he's he's uh actually the lord of games um but and then you have killer instinct 2013 as a plausible lord of games appearance that's what we're trying to determine right now but we know that the lord of games likes to check in on the events of the games observing either as a fully disguised being or as himself or maybe as himself in a not so subtle but subtle enough for the uneducated observer form so you know in in some ways you mentioned martian manhunter it's funny you brought that up the uh the dc extended universe because i'm thinking of stan lee's character in the marvel cinematic universe uh because of course that was revealed in guardians of the galaxy volume 2 to be an agent sent to observe all the, the heroic happenings around the galaxy, uh, sent by the Watchers. And and you could even make the case then that presumably uh, he's been sent out into the multiverse now, where because Stan Lee's disappearance in the modern MCU, which coincided, you know, unfortunately with his passing a few years ago, that could be accounted for by the multiverse expanding at the end of Loki, and then the Watchers sending him into every universe as seen in previous Marvel cinematic continuities, like the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. So that, that's just Stanley's Watcher character now out in the multiverse. But I, I also honestly think like Log could just be intruding on these universes to fuck around. Yeah. Be, like, because he strikes me as that kind of character. You just do this on a whim. To have fun. Right. Like, uh, Log's motivations are not entirely clear. Uh, he could be more of a, a, a trickster. Like, he could be, like, less than what he claims he is. But Lord of Games was a controversial character uh, when Nuts and Bolts was unveiled. I remember all of the, the gnashing of teeth on the DK Vine forum about how this just ruins yeah. Banjo-Kazooie to have them actually... He's still a... Uh... He's still a very polarizing character, and a lot, of, a lot of it, I think, is just the nature of Nuts and Bolts' story itself, mm-hmm. and because he's the avatar of it. Yeah, I personally love Log. I think I think Log is just uh, brilliant, and I don't think he breaks the universe in any real way. Like I, I, 
I I was trepidatious when we found out like what his role was in the plot of Nuts and Bolts. Like, because I'm thinking, well, doesn't this kind of undermine the world building? But then you actually meet him, and I get the very distinct impression, like, oh, you don't actually have as much control over this universe as you like people to think you do, because I can just run you over with my shopping trolley. <laughs> right. He's not. He's not all powerful. You know. He. Uh, like he he is he's extremely powerful but you know he 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 is i don't know you 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 can you can knock I mean, him around a bit i i mean like we already brought up like marvel and dc parallels i see him as like a parallel to like batmite or mr yes. mitsky's picklet yes yes oh congratulations on pronouncing that i would never make that attempt <laughs> but yeah he, he's like the um what is it like the fifth dimensional imps? Yeah, exactly. Um, where he comes in, he like bends everything to his will and then he leaves. And you're like, did that actually happen? Uh, or is that just a figment of my imagination? I like how the Grant Morrison, uh, Batman comics, what, what they did was, uh, Grant like took the concept of Batmite and said, oh, Batmite is Batmite, or Batman's like, imaginary hallucination but he also might be real because the fifth dimension is imagination and it's just like it's just the perfect kind of grant <laughs> morrison-esque like oh yeah that's a good workaround but also that's like preserves the integrity of every batmite story so they could plausibly still be taken at face value i love it but <laughs> all right but we, this, this is this is like it still seems like up in the air, right? Like, we, we have the gold border example. We can really easily apply that to the Lord of Games because absolutely the Lord of Games would appear disguised as Banjo's backpack, but we can see through that disguise. And in fact, as I said, when you're playing Killer Instinct 2013 as Rash in the rareware gear, you have the backpack equipped. It's not always on, so there is some sort of like flicker of consciousness or perhaps this this idea that there is consciousness in there it's also like if he was going to hide himself like this is a this is a cheeky guy's way of being sneaky because he's hiding on somebody's back where they're not going to see him exactly um and like from the front the backpack just has like blue straps where you could even mistake it and think like oh that's going to be banjo's backpack Until you turn it around. That's that's why I'm saying, like, it is actually supposed to be Banjo's backpack in-universe, but Log is disguising himself as Banjo's backpack. All right, but what effect would saying Killer Instinct 2013 is canon to DKU have on the DKU? This is a conversation we had about Saberwolf, GBA 2, and by extension the Mobile Edition, but... The biggest thing that's always presented to me as a counter-narrative, as an argument against saying this is Log, is that Killer Instinct is already a video game in the DKU, by way of DKC2 and Conquer's Bad Fur Day, among others. But as Steve already alluded to in his lengthy screed, and as as I often bring up, and as you bring up, all video games are video games in the DKU. Yeah, yeah. what was the plot of Donkey Kong Land again? <laughs> right. I think this is the silliest <laughs> argument because have you been paying attention 
to any of this since the start? The the second DKU game immediately tanking any integrity right. that this universe has. Even from a modern perspective, Donkey Kong plays as himself in Mario Kart 7 in Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze. Um, Cranky, you know, Cranky has, from the start, always been going on about being a video game character. B- yeah, it's the entire point of his bit. Yeah. Banjo, Kazooie, Conker, they have always broken that fourth wall. The, the DKU is just a fourth wall breaking madhouse. I mean, that that is what it is. And, and, of course, the Lord of Games tells everyone they all exist in a video game. But here's the thing, though. There's also another layer on top of everything. People who are, like, get all bent out of shape about the Lord of Games and about, you've broken the fourth wall too much, I can't buy into this universe because they all know they're in a video game. Well, like I said, there there is another layer, there's another level to all of this where there is an in-universe rationale behind it all that allows for it to both be a video game reality and, in truth, our own reality. So, we know Rare and Nintendo exist as actual companies in the DKU, and the video games they make are based on the real-life events in the Rare archipelago and elsewhere. And in fact, this is this is something Viva Piñata gifted us. Viva Piñata gave us this gold mine of lore. It in, in ancillary Viva Piñata promotional materials, they explain that Rare sends the explorer Horace St. James Go Lightly to Piñata Island in order to chronicle the wildlife there. And this also presumably means if if Rare's got this guy on on you know tab if he's if he's working for them then he's presumably been everywhere in the archipelago from donkey kong island to willow wood slash the panther kingdom sea of thieves backs this up all the way back to the 18th century where it can be surmised that those sailing around with the rare sails which are current and former rare staff who were part of the studio at the time of sea of thieves are the ancestors of modern-day Rare. And among those ancestors are the Stamper Brothers, who would take their ill-gotten family gold from piracy and use it to found Ultimate Play the Game and later Rare. And they took the iconography of those sales and used it as their studio logo. As well as the knowledge that was accrued from sailing around the Atlantic and then using it to develop ideas for their video game company. So Killer Instinct being a video game and also being a real fighting tournament is something that totally meshes with the DKU. And in fact, um, I didn't bring this up in our references because it happened after KI 2013, but we have a game where the in-universe like nefarious Megacorp Ultra Tech... We we have a DKU game where that exists explicitly, and that is in Connect Sports Rivals. Connect Sports Rivals, yes. Where they are trying to recruit athletes. <laughs> um, da- Datadyne is also involved there. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I I would advise nobody to sign on either of those dotted lines. <laughs> <laughs> and and of course. Uh, from a, a latter-day 
Renaissance perspective, we've also had real Killer Instinct characters meeting DKU characters because there was a Killer Instinct team alongside the Rare Limited team in hashtag IDARB, IDARB. So, like, they exist. Like, there, there has been crossover there. The actual argument we're having now is, does Killer Instinct 2013 get into the DKU by way of the Lord of Games? And, and of course, I, I think it's pretty explicit right now where I'm leaning. I'm leaning towards yes, because Bleeding Edge has like planted that seed, and now the seed has burst through the soil and is a is a ripe young vegetating vine in my brain. But let's let's talk about spinal a little bit, Cameron. And his possible connections to <laughs> Sea of Thieves. And how everything about him in Killer Instinct 2013 lines up perfectly, perfectly with everything that would later come in Sea of Thieves. Yeah, so uh, so Spinal, you know, he's obviously been in Killer Instinct since the beginning. But uh, I feel like his origins were always kept like, purposely vague Mm -hmm. um you get like little hints of it but i mean he's he's obviously like inspired by like a jason and the argonauts like stop motion skeleton like that's and he's like an ancient warrior but it wasn't really delved into in depth there's like some ambiguity his like um like, his stage in Killer Instinct 2 is, like, a Viking-style ship. Um, but to when they reinvented the character for KI-2013, and uh, they, they dressed him up with more of a theme, and they made him very explicitly an undead pirate. Mm-hmm. Very clearly uh, what we would know as a skelly in Sea of Thieves terminology, which is which is kind of the the offhand nickname that humans, living humans, give to the uh, the, the skeleton undead that roam the Sea of Thieves. But um, see, uh, Spinal also has a stage in Killer Instinct 2013. Uh, was Shipwreck Shore? Is that the name of it? Um. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's, it's shipwreck okay. shore. The very, very Donkey Kong Country name. Yeah, and I always want to say shipwreck bay because that is a uh, that is a Sea of Thieves island. But uh, shipwreck shore is the most Sea of Thieves stage one could have without referencing it, Sea of Thieves explicitly. It is even specifically somewhere in the Caribbean. Yes, and and, and here here's the thing because Sea of Thieves is. Uh, Vaguely uh, around Mosquito Island in the Caribbean. That's the entry point to the Sea of Thieves. You go through the Devil Shroud. You're into the realm of the Sea of Thieves then. But um, Spinal Stage has not only like shipwrecks and, and bones scattered about the shore, but it's got ghost ships in the background. Green spectral ghost ships, which look... So much like Flameheart's ghost ships in Sea of Thieves. And then also Captain Skeleton's ghost ship in Banjo-Kazooie Grunty's Revenge. 
there there has been consistency with all pirate ghost ships in the DKU since 2003. It was it was very fun to revisit this revisit KI 2013 again in the light of Sea of Thieves existing and all the content rollout that's happened since. Yes. yes. Because obviously I'd spent time with the game before, but then I see the ghost ship in the background. I'm like, oh, of course. Well, and then of and course. then the Kraken pops out, and you're like, oh my god, it's the Kraken, and and it just looks like a Sea of Thieves Kraken too. Like it, from a distance, you can just say like, yeah, that's that's a same type of Kraken. Uh, in fact, I think Spinal has the Kraken on his shield. Yeah, he's or at least his. He's got like a sort of like Cthulhu looking yeah, shield. Yeah, but I think you could say that that's a stylistic depiction of the Kraken. It reminds me of the cave art of the Kraken in the E3 2015 trailer. Um, you, you saw like the first hint of that for Sea of Thieves. And it's just, it's just perfect. Yeah, I think it's I think it's specifically a Kraken shield. Like, you, like that's yeah. what it's meant to you, be. You could say like Shipwreck Shore is in the Caribbean right outside of the Sea of Thieves like entrance like near what Old Sailor Island, Island um, where, where the Maiden Voyage takes place. Um, and then you have like these things from the Sea of Thieves spilling out into the the greater world, like the Kraken or or whatever. Or you could say like maybe Shipwreck Shore is in the Sea of Thieves, and it just the shroud is covering it during uh, the actual time of the game Sea of Thieves. Like Treasure Trove Cove is in the Sea of Thieves, but you can't access it in Sea of Thieves because it's encased in the shroud at that point in time. I mean, we have Shipwreck Bay. It's so close. Right. And we know pirates like reusing the same terms again and again and again in different they configurations. They sure do. Yep. Um, yeah. Um, so I, I wanted to take I wanted to take this time and read this like direct quote from Spinal's um, expanded backstory for KI 2013. So what happened with the. The storytelling in KI 2013 is when the game, like, first got going, everybody had, like, a brief sort of backstory bio. Mm -hmm. And sometime around, like, them gearing up for season three, they did a deep dive into the backstories of every single character who had been introduced up until that point to give them, like, more of a full fleshed out story. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the relevant... I want to read the relevant chapter of Spinals. Um, Go for it. Because it's a very long story. Um, it involves him being, like, cursed and burned alive and stuff like that. But uh, this is this is what's re relevant to our purposes. Washing up in the Caribbean centuries later and drawn by a pull he could not understand, Spinal took up a pirate's life as a way to track and plunder precious items moving around the continents, always focused on finding the mask. Um, that's the Mask of the Ancients. It's an artifact he's hunting. Um, many stories were told of the skeletal pirate and his dread galleon sinking vessels full of treasure and gold without ever looting a single coin. The demented marauder laughing with mad glee as he preyed on his victims. For Spinal had finally embraced his insanity, and he felt a primal joy as he wreaked havoc and chaos with rediscovered magics. So, uh... How many players that we've, like, almost <laughs> blocked on Xbox Live does that sound like to you, Hyle? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> just so much of that story just lines up so neatly. 
And, and granted, like, it's easy because Sea of Thieves plays on such broad archetypes of, of piracy and nautical legend and lore. But, I mean, it, 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 just, it just, just fits so well that it just makes me wonder, like, when are we going to get Spinal in Sea of Thieves proper? Like, we've had Pendragon. Uh, when are we going to get Spinal? When are we going to get Black Eye? Like, that's just one of Add him to the list, right? Like, it would just be so perfect. Uh, yeah, and he is in the game as a figurehead. That's a that's an important note as well. Yes, so the the killer instinct, uh, f- uh, like ship cosmetics and the weapon cosmetics. What are, what are they called? The cutthroat set. Yeah, the spinals figurehead is separate from the cutthroat set yeah. because it's the cutthroat set is Fulgore themed, right? Um, which they had to do because Spinal was already in the game as at fig- that point, yeah. and um. um yeah, and the he, he's modeled an appearance after his Killer Instinct 2 look, and the in-game description is just, uh, this legendary skeleton warrior shows you're a pirate with a Killer Instinct. Mm. So it's it's a little bit more vague and like more explicitly tied into KI2, but it, again, legendary skeleton warrior, it's perfectly massageable into KI2013 Spinal as well. It makes perfect sense for him to be here. And it frames him as if he could actually, you know, still be around. And and the Killer Instinct 2 connection is important because that game involves time travel. Everybody from Killer Instinct went back to the past. And um, that would explain why the KI iconography exists within the Sea of Thieves because it's been handed down from that time travel. Right? Obviously. <laughs> So, yeah, I love it. And, and I, I love that Spinal is just this, like, obvious link. And, and, and Shipwreck Shore just, just plays with it accidentally. Because, again, this, this was added in March of 2016. Sea of Thieves had been announced at that point. But all of this stuff, like Krakens and, and Ghost Ships, that wasn't shown off in Sea of Thieves. Like, Ghost Ships didn't come to Sea of Thieves until much, much later. Krakens came in Sea of Thieves at launch in March of 2018. But like this, this is all just like lining up accidentally as is so often the case with the DKU. It's all an accident, but it somehow always works in our favor. Um, or, or if it doesn't with, you know, very gentle massaging and get it back into place. Okay. So, so that, that explains like how killer instinct 2013 could work in the context of the DKU, but what about Rash the Battletoad? Because this is where it gets interesting, Cameron. Because Battletoads 2020, which was DKU by way of Captain Bones from Sea of Thieves, it establishes that the Toads had been in a virtual simulation for 26 years. That This kind of hollow bunker that they didn't realize they were in since 1994, actually right before the DKU even technically began, because Battletoads Arcade was released just before Donkey Kong Country came out. It's kind of like the, the passing of the torch from one era of Rare into the next. So how does that account for Rash in this game, which he was added in March 2016 officially? Um, or, or even Rash in IDARB, because he also appeared in that, if... Battletoads 2020 retcons that he's been in a virtual simulation all that time. 
And he's been making, he even made cameos outside the DKU because he, the Battletoads, and even Professor T-Bird all appear in Shovel Knight. Right, yeah. And in fact, Rash's victory line in this game is, these cameos are killing me. And, and and so that that just like as you know ties into the fact that yeah they were really pushing Rash right now as this like character who would pop up in all these other franchises. Well, the beginning of Battletoads twenty twenty after they escape from the virtual simulation bunker, it shows them getting on with their lives, and uh, like uh, I think. Um, was it Zitz gets an office job, like a boring office job? Um, yeah, lead, lead attacher at the email factory. Right. Uh, Pimple becomes a masseuse. And my favorite sequence of the game, you have to gently knead the, uh, the, the tired sore knots of this alien dude who's really enjoying it. And what of Rash? Well, Rash... It suggests that Rash is on the rare limited convention circuit with Captain Bones, which to me implies that all of his cameo appearances actually take place during this window of time, during this montage era where they all get on with their lives, where he's kind of like the shill or mascot for Rare, and he's representing them like throughout the universe. (laughs) So, like, that would mean that the Lord of Games uses Rash's fake paid actor status with Rare, complete with dressing like Conker and Banjo in Killer Instinct, to disguise himself as Banjo's no, that would That would even track with um, the whole theme uh, in early Battletoads 2020 that, like, the Battletoads star has fallen so far... That they're like, well, you can show up, but you know, you gotta, you gotta wear a conquer mask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, so people think you're conquer, right? It might not just like work if you just appear the, in in this fighting game, but it, yeah, make sure you wear the conquer hood, dress as banjo, promote those products, get out there. Uh, <laughs> I love that. And then, of course, the Lord of Games would see that as his opening, and it's like, okay, I can just sneak onto his apparel here and observe the events of this new Killer Instinct tournament. Fantastic. Yeah, I I don't know how you would square it with Shovel Knight because more than just Rash appears in that game. But I mean, the thing is, there there can always be like time travel fuckery because we're talking about Killer Instinct. Right. Cameron, we are in meta on meta on meta levels of of (laughs) bullshit here. This This is fantastic. This is the area where I feel most at home, where it's just like... So, so you mean to tell me that IDARB and Battletoads 2020, and if if you want, you know, Shovel Knight, they all take place within this early montage of Battletoads 2020 in the year 2020. Yes, that is exactly what I'm arguing. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and maybe Killer Instinct 2013, like seasons one and two, took place in 2013 and 2014. But I'm saying season three, when Rash joined... 2020 in the middle of the pandemic also also rash comes out of like a purple portal as his intro which could be a portal for in time it could be a portal from another universe we don't know yeah just just a wormhole right i I made the reference on twitter that uh it's funny that rash comes through a portal swinging on a vine and in uh the new super mario strikers battle league donkey kong comes through a portal swinging on a vine 
when he when he's the team captain. And I'm just like, wow, Kev Bayless characters just love coming through portals, swinging on vines. Yeah, I think he alluded that we will see Salamander's characters come on a vine next. Right, right. <laughs> so yeah. we don't have any actual calls, but once again, DK Vine patron DJ Cat, who has been a long proponent of this, and has always been pushing for Spinal to appear in Sea of Thieves. DJ Cat wrote in with some extensive thoughts to avoid the uh, international fees of calling the DK Vine hotline. So here's DJ Cat. Says DJ Cat swinging on by, presumably through a portal, to share some thoughts on Killer Instinct. Let me take you back to December 2013. I'd been out of tune with modern gaming for a couple of years and had mostly only been playing multiplayer games with my mates on the N64 and occasionally some Smash Brothers Melee. I'd heard about the announcement of Killer Instinct earlier that year, but was discouraged to hear it wasn't being developed by Rare. Anyway, come December my mate and I went to one of our one of our one of the semi-regular LAN Smash tournament events in our area called LAN Smash. We were mostly there just to play some melee doubles. Our team name was Bob's Unbelievable Moves slash Cheeky Unexpected Monkey. There's an acronym in there. And whip out the old N64 and made me check out whatever other things they had going on that day. So after we got knocked out of melee doubles, we checked out what games were there. And someone had the new Killer Instinct. We pretended not to be interested while playing away on the N64, even actually playing Killer Instinct Gold at one point, almost to prove how not interested we were. <laughs> anyway, late in the afternoon, we noticed the KI setup was finally free, so we thought we might mosey on over and give it a dig. We were both Killer Instinct fans. My mate, Monkey, had the SNES original and loved it, and I had Killer Instinct Gold on the N64, and it was my favorite traditional fighting game ever. So we got over there with fairly low expectations. This was the super early season one version of the game, with only six characters, and maybe not even all the stages yet. I can't remember. We play our first match in the Tiger's Lair with Monkey playing a Saber Wolf, and myself as Orchid. Holy bloody hell! We didn't know the controls, so we just did our knowledgeable mashing and tried to do moves from the old games. And holy crap, some of it worked! They kept the moves somewhat the same, so it would feel familiar to old players. Then there was how good the game looked, but what really jumped out was the sound. The music, oh my Mick Gordon. Instantly recognizable, as using some of the same tunes from the old game, but new renditions turned up to 11. No turned up the 64. And then the sound. They nailed the announcer absolutely yelling out all the combos like the old games. Ultra impressive! And later you find that there is an option to change between the new announcer and Chris Bloody Sutherland. So yeah, I could go on, but we were damn impressed to say the least. So impressed that I went out and bought an Xbox One the following Monday. It was clear that the team who had worked on this game might not have been rare, but they got the game, and it did it so right. There are some very good documentaries on this game that highlight this, and yeah, knowing Ken Lobb was involved and just how damn passionate that dude is about the game, 
it was always going to be a success. I knew you guys did the episode on the Renaissance earlier this year, but to me, the release of this game absolutely was the beginning of the Renaissance. It took me from being a kind of cynical mid-twenties cranky so-and-so to buying an Xbox One and therefore being all over the new Rare stuff that came in the following year or two, which I otherwise would have missed. Rare Replay and the Sea of Thieves announcement were such perfect follow-ups and what you think of but the return of a beloved but seemingly long-gone series like this really got the ball rolling and got folks like me back on board. What else is great about KI? The characters. The story. The baked-in lore. The fact that people call it a reboot, but really it's a sequel because they aged up the characters and didn't just pretend previous games didn't happen. They did it so well. Okay, that's enough for me. Closing thought is... I love the game and the series as a whole, and it was the beginning of the Renaissance, but I have no idea how it could possibly be DKU, but whatever floats your boat. Speaking of boats, Spinal and Sea of Thieves one day? I mean the actual character, not a cosmetic. Okay, that's all. Thank you, DJ Cat, for the uh, the insight. It's funny, because, you know, you mentioned it was Killer Instinct 2013 that got you to finally buy an Xbox One. For me, it was Project Spark. Conquer's Big Reunion Episode 1. And I, I bring that up all the time to be like, you know, how little it took to nudge me in that yeah. direction. It's like, oh. It was, it was rare replay for me. But um, I, I, I agree on a lot of the, a lot of the points here and that I wanted to touch on just real quick. But yeah, I think this is firmly the beginning of the Renaissance because it's the game that I remember like, public perception turning around on in real time mm-hmm. in a like this classic rare franchise is back and it's um in the mood be- better than it's ever been okay. maybe <laughs> um um because when the game was revealed i remember there was a lot of trepidation about it um first off as dj cat says because rare wasn't making it um after like even some uh, former Rare employees have said like they wanted to, they would be interested in making a Killer Instinct sequel. Um, there was the very controversial um, release model because um, when the game was announced, it was only announced with three characters. <laughs> yeah, um, Jago, yeah. Saberwolf, and Glacius. Like, Fulgore wasn't even shown, no, nor Spinal, nor Orchid. Like, every... Most of the characters I would think of is like, these are the faces of Killer Instinct are not there. Um, and it had a very controversial free-to-play model, which, like, now, now, like, every major fighting game, like, apes this exact purchase model because they saw how it worked in Killer Instinct and thought, well, okay, that makes sense. But at the time, it was kind of seen as... Oh, you're you're rushing this out to for the Xbox launch, which they they were. Um, you're you're giving you're giving us an incomplete game. You're going to nickel and dime everybody by making them buy every character piecemeal. Um, but no, that became like a very popular model because realistically, like people who play fighting games, you might only like want to play as like three characters yeah. or one character, and 
like you know you wanted to you wanted to get killer instinct and just get jago like you, you you are the person who you you do care about jago go nuts right it, that can be the jago game for you kind of a la carte you oh. know just just uh pick pick what you want like uh we do with streaming services these days rather than buying the whole cable package right but um like it turned out to be a really accessible way to get people into a fighting game and that's something i really wanted to can speak to with ki 2013 um i like i am bad at ki 2013 but i'm bad at it in a different way than i was bad at killer instinct one and two Mm -hmm. which is Killer Instinct 1 and 2, I had no idea what was going on the entire time. Uh, Killer Instinct 2013 is actually very much, like, as far as traditional, like, competitive combo fighters go, on the, is a pretty accessible entry point into the genre because it has a very good uh, training mode that kind of walks you through, like, without talking down to you, like, okay, this is, these are the like basic concepts of how a fighting game works and we're gonna teach them to you like one one by one how to do all these like inputs that you may not be used to doing right yeah um i i you know playing it i i've had a blast honestly like uh two and a half hours went by that first night and i looked at the time and i was like what happened i didn't expect it to suck me in as, as much as it did and Honestly, when I got to Shipwreck Shore and I was playing as Rash in the Conquer Hood and the Log Backpack and the Banjo Shorts, and I was fighting Spinal and I saw the Ghost Ships and the Kraken, I was cackling. I was cackling like I had lost my mind because I was just so giddy. I was so giddy at what I was seeing on my screen. And it, it, it was almost sexual for me. It was, it was, it was that great. Um... I, I, I actually really like this game, and I think it perfectly captures the tone of what Killer Instinct should be, while it does bring it into the modern era of gaming. It's a very delicate balance, but I think they nailed it. 100%, yeah. And honestly, like I, 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 I got this, and I got uh, Battle League. And I I was playing them both kind of simultaneously, like not literally simultaneously, but I was just trading off. S- Super Mario Strikers Battle League for people who think that's like an indie fighter. Right, right. And honestly, like <laughs> Battle League just doesn't hold my interest like Killer Instinct 2013. As far as like my new quote unquote new games go, uh, Killer Instinct 2013, I can just melt the hours away with where Battle League, I'm always just like looking up and I'm like, oh, God. And and that's not a like that's not a slag against Battle League. We'll do an episode on Battle League by just I don't know, just the, the gameplay. Even if I'm bad at Killer Instinct 2013, it's more engaging than uh than yet another Mario soccer game, but with less characters. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a there's a lot for I think people with DKU sensibilities to sink their teeth into because. Killer Instinct 2013 is at once a very lore-heavy game, but it's of the, like, the kind of... It's like Sea of Thieves, like, you don't need to... It's not like you need to know tomes and tomes worth of backstory to understand it, but there's a lot of very fun stuff going on in Killer Instinct. Right. And a lot of fun with these characters. Right. And how they've reinvented them. All right. 
Well, Cameron, uh, I, I I know uh, DJ Cat has no idea how we can pull this off, but it does float my boat. So let's say we do say this log backpack is in fact the Lord of Games. That leaves us with another question that we have to uh, figure out before we can proceed. Would this make Killer Instinct 2013 a cameo game? Or a full-fledged DKU filtered spin-off, sort of like what we consider Saberwolf GBA to be, a a reimagining, a sort of quasi-reboot of the franchise within the DKU filter to make this version of Killer Instinct entirely DKU. And, and that's an interesting question because there's a lot of things, both pro and con for that argument to be had. Um, I know you have some explicit thoughts on this. So, so when, when this came up with Saberwolf GBA, it was in the conversation of like, is this, is Saberwolf GBA what Donkey Kong country was for DK arcade? Is this sufficiently like a, even though it's in continuity with an older game, Mm -hmm. Is it sufficiently enough a modern reimagining of a classic franchise that we can kind of consider consider like this is a whole new chapter? We can slot this into the DKU. It is. It can be its own thing from here on right, out. Right. Like, uh, l- let me be clear. When, when we say that Killer Instinct 2013 is DKU, we're not like saying Killer Instinct one and two aren't canon to killer instinct or or can't be canon to killer instinct 2013 it's just it's just like the same way that donkey kong arcade and donkey kong jr and donkey kong 3 and donkey kong math are canon to donkey kong country but the the actual modern donkey kong series starts with donkey kong country that's all we're saying so uh about that (laughs) um killer instinct 2013 Handle, handles its con- continuity in a kind of in a kind of weird way, but in in a way that I've I've grown to really really appreciate. Um, like if we're if if we're talking about Saber Wolf and Donkey Kong Country being modern reimaginings of classic franchises, uh, Ki twenty thirteen is that to a much more explicit extent. Um, there's some there's some back and forth. Like is is the game a sequel? Is it a reboot? I think ultimately, I, I think it. I think um, in what I followed, like season one is more in the realm of sequel, and the subsequent seasons are tend a little bit more toward reboot. If you had to label it one or the other, I think it ultimately is better classified as a continuity reboot. But um, and I'm saying now. My, Keep in mind, I'm saying this as the person who generally thinks that, like, like rebooting your continuity is kind of a coward's way out. Uh-huh. I've gone on about this, about Star Fox Command, <laughs> and how quickly people are to brush that game aside. And I'm like, no, no, it gave you a perfect out. You, you, own, your, you own your messy legacy. Right. That's what makes it fun. Messy legacies. That's what the DKU is. It's just one big mess, and I love it. But um, all that said, Killer Instinct 2013 handles like a quote-unquote reboot in like 
the best way I can possibly imagine you handling it. Because essentially what it does is it kind of interesting to leave the series in a really weird place yes. because of it being a game where the premise is that time is kind of falling apart. And so characters are being pulled from different time periods like um, characters like Maya and Kim Wu are explicitly characters from the past um the spinal in killer instinct 2 is explicitly a younger spinal than the one in killer instinct 1 because he died at the end of killer instinct yeah, 1 fight, fighting games of this era loved to pull this shit mortal Kombat would pull this shit all the time where it's just like yeah oh this is a different version of that character like yeah a, like glacius is a different glacius because glacius apparently off screen won his freedom after killing Cinder. <laughs> um Riptor is also dead after dying at the hands of TJ Combo, who got his eye scraped out in the fight. Um so you can see this this kind of complicates things if you want to do a sequel fighting game where you bring back every pre-existing character when a huge chunk of them are dead or from another time. Right. And I, I like Mortal, Mortal Kombat would get around this all the time by just <laughs> saying, oh, yeah, this uh, the, the demon god Panini has revived this character and now they are their servants and we're just bringing this character back or this character gets a third resurrection. Like death quickly loses all meaning in a game called Mortal Kombat. So so how KI-2013 handles this is essentially anything that is... Any any characters like that that have fates that would be inconvenient to bringing them back in a modern game have their stories retooled. Um, Riptor and Cinder are no longer dead. Maya and Kim Wu are contemporary characters from the modern day. Um, Tusk is still from ancient times, but he's a thousand plus year old immortal man. Mm-hmm. Um, but it. It, now it it does all that, but it keeps any basically all key character development events and revelations from Ki One and Two, and as well as like aging up some of the cast as they would be. Like Orchid went from her twenties to her thirties in Ki Twenty Thirteen. Yeah, all of all of that, all basically all the fun continuity that enhances enhances your ability to find these characters is kept. Um, Jago um, still, um, like, it, the the premise of Jago, but between KI1 and 2, he found out that the tiger spirit he's been worshipping was actually um, Gargos in, in disguise. Right, which, which is always um, weird to me because Garg... Gargos is a gargoyle man, not a, a tiger, and that would be a weird thing to disguise yourself. But whatever, yeah, whatever. Yeah, um, that is still canon. And by the time of Ki twenty thirteen, Jago is desperately trying to like excise like Gargos's bad vibes from his spirit because he has opened himself up to possession by Gargos's herald omen, <laughs> and that's how. 
you get the character Shadow Jago. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have things like, um, as I mentioned, Orchid is a little bit older in this game, and she's been like, she was originally from a spy agency that was like investigating Ultratech's shady shit. Um, she has since been like disavowed by that agency and has gone underground and formed her own like resistance cell. Um, uh, and uh, the Fulgor model in game is canonically the Mark III model. They go through a different Fulgor model every numbered KI. Yeah, and uh, the biggest one that like. The biggest thing that they kept, which made me like, okay, I'm I am totally okay with how this handled everything, um, is Saberwolf. Let's talk about Saberwolf. Okay, what do you want to talk about with Saberwolf? <laughs> to be clear, this is Saberwolf without a space. This is the the Killer Instinct character, not not the not the GBA game or the Spectrum game. Right, not not the um. Well, let, let's get into this. All right, go. Just 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 out with it. Right. So. Saberwolf um, had a very involved and silly history between KI one and two. Um, he's he's a werewolf man. Yes, and sometime um, again, a lot of stuff happened off screen between uh, KI one and two. Um, he was Ultratech. Um, got him. Um, he was like. He was captured. He was captured by Ultratech in the story of Ki Two, and after he was like pretty injured, pretty badly in the first tournament, um, and Ultratech fitted him with cyber cybernetic arms the, let, and, let, that could shoot electricity. Yeah, let me explain to to the younger <laughs> folks out there. Getting fitted with cybernetic arms was just something that was done all the time in the mid nineties. I, I mean, anytime you went to the hospital, to the emergency room, you were likely to walk out with cybernetic death arms. It just happened, all right? It was totally out of control. The the uh, cybernetic arms industry clearly bribing doctors, you know, to get through the door. Uh, they, they pretty much shut that down uh, by the turn of the millennium. Right. So when Saberwolf reappeared in the, the debut the Killer Instinct uh, 2013 trailer, I was thinking to myself, oh, his arms are normal again. I guess they just wrote that part of the story out that he had <laughs> electricity shooting cyborg arms. That's not fun. Uh, <laughs> lo and behold, no, that is not what happened. Um, canonically, what has happened in this revised continuity is that um, Saberwolf Saberwolf was still captured by Ultratech and fitted with cybernetics, but he escaped he escaped their clutches, returned to his castle, um, tore the cybernetics out of his body, and using his knowledge of like like old arcane sciences and potions and like his his alchemical lab regenerated his his lost limbs yeah. and healed his body and I'm like that that is the point where like okay I'm sold this is right. you you didn't you didn't 
um, get rid of something because it was silly. You made it even sillier. Exactly. Yeah. And I am a hundred percent on board. Yeah, the absolutely, the easy way out would just be say, "Well, that never happened. That's nonsense. He's just a werewolf man. Let's just keep it simple." And it's like, well, but no, no. The that accrued history is what makes this kind of stuff special. You know, uh, you just roll with it. Yeah. Of course, it, it does bring up the the uh, point I need to make that Saber Wolf, the Killer Instinct character, is a separate character from the Saber Wolf, the legendary immortal wolf creature who stalks the jungles that Saberman deals with, that Cranky Kong had briefly decapitated and kept as a memento in his cabin. Uh, separate characters. I, I think you could make the argument that Saber Wolf takes his name, the identity of that legendary figure, more as an homage. He, he's canonically a man named Baron Conrad von Saberwolf. Yeah, which uh, the the family name is taken from that legend of the Saberwolf. Right. It, it it fits. All right. It's just it's just. Yeah, you you can you can connect the two, but like he's not Saberman. He's not Saberwolf. The Saberwolf. Yeah. Because that that is a common misconception that Saberwolf and Killer Instinct is just. Saber Wolf or Saber Man as a wolf. No. No. It, it it was a reference at the time, but they can coexist in a shared rare universe. Now, Cameron, all that being said uh, about reboots and, and, and how Killer Instinct 2013 is a reboot, but not a full reboot, but enough of a reboot for our purposes, it, it, it definitely is a reboot. I will agree with you there. But you know, D- DK Vine has placed a greater importance in recent years on developers, on who has developed the game. Uh, with the rise of Platonic, it's been important to parse out what is a full-fledged living branch of the DKU that can grow and evolve, and what's merely temporarily tangled. Uh, it's how we judge Super Smash Brothers to be a cameo game. A, a temporary crossover, while ukulele is a full-fledged living branch uh, sprouting out from the DKU, despite the former Smash Brothers having a playable appearance by the modern Donkey Kong, while the latter only has a dubious appearance by a goldfish that we know is supposed to be Royston, but legally we can't say is Royston. So why do we give ukulele a greater importance than Super Smash Brothers or Mario Kart? Well, it comes with the authority of rare or rare veterans. And this is the way my thinking has really evolved over the years, but especially recently. I feel like the that authority of rare or rare vets is actually vital to our thought now. Um, and I realize that's controversial to some some old-timers here at DK Vine. I think Jeff and I argued about it via Bleeding Edge and even the upcoming Clive and Wrench, which I both maintain are cameo games because Rare are played... Muddying our Jeff lore by calling him an old-timer. I know, right? I, he's, he's, he's Schrodinger's Jeff. He's both ancient and he's both a whittle baby at the same time. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I think, like, if Rare or Platonic aren't involved... Nor is it a Donkey Kong sequel or side game like, you know, Return, Tropical Freeze or, or Payon games or whatever, uh, Jungle Beat even, you know. But uh, 
that 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 is the dividing line. That's why Bleeding Edge is a cameo game, uh, and that's why Ukulele or or even Battletoads twenty twenty is potentially a living branch of the DKU because rare or rare veterans were involved in its creation. So that brings us to the awkward thing that is Killer Instinct 2013 and how to discuss it because it's a weird one because Rare's not behind it. Rare doesn't even have their logo on it. But they did have input on Killer Instinct 2013. And it's a Rare legacy franchise that true, Rare didn't develop it, but Rare is still acknowledged as, as, you know, being a a source, a, a... spring a fountain of knowledge like they were with conquer's big reunion and in fact many rare employees are credited in the game and ken lob ken lob is also creative director and and i would make the argument that ken lob is basically an honorary rare employee <laughs> because ken lob for those of you who don't know yeah, who ken I mean- lob is you, you, if you don't know who Ken Lobb is, you probably you might know what a Clob is, right? In Golden from Golden Eye, yeah. Ken Lobb worked at Nintendo of America and was basically the liaison to Rare back in the day, and became Rare's best buddy at Nintendo of America. Ken Lobb is on the Donkey Kong Country Exposed VHS with Josh Wolf. He is the mustachioed man who uh, first introduces himself to Josh and and takes him through Nintendo of America, offers him a banana. Uh, That is Ken Lobb. And uh, by the way, I met Ken Lobb in 2015 at E3. And uh, he looks basically the same as he did on that VHS, a little bit older, but still very recognizably the same man. Surreal. Um, But but yeah, Ken Lobb, good good friend of Rare, and actually had a hand in how Microsoft came to purchase them in 2002. Because by that point, Ken Lobb had left Nintendo of America, went to the, the newly founded Xbox, and was like, hmm, <laughs> what can I do? Oh, I know. <laughs> I have a good rapport with these guys. Yeah, yeah. Let, <laughs> let me grease the wheels here. And, you know, saved us from Activision owning Rare. So, <laughs> thanks, thanks, Ken. <laughs> Yeah, um I we mentioned it earlier but um there's a good there's a very good um YouTube documentary um fight on the killer instinct story um on the hold back to block channel that goes over it, it, it they interviewed Ken Lobb to kind of speak on the history of killer instinct and killer instinct 2013 and it kind of pr- puts into perspective just how big a role he had in the original game. Yeah. Yeah, much more than you would think. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I consider Ken Lobb to basically be an honorary Rare employee just because of that. Because this was his passion project, getting Killer Instinct on the Xbox, having a new game. Th- that was his doing. At the very least, he's official. He's the official steward of Killer Instinct as a property, and has been since its inception. Right, right. So, I think that is sufficient enough. Like, I'm not saying if Josh Wolf from the Donkey Kong Country Exposed video, like, was in charge of a of a rebooted property, like, and, and they like they they put, like, I I I don't know. They they put um. 
Like I, I don't know. Can you can you imagine if they put the banana chef from that video in charge of a Donkey Kong Country re- <laughs> uh, soft reboot? Yeah, yeah I, I just realized I, I was dawning on me that I was talking myself into a corner there because Michael Kelbow <laughs> from the Donkey Kong Country Exposed video, of course, would later head up Retro Studios. And later, his passion project would be Donkey Kong Country Returns, and then later Tropical Freeze. So, I, I maybe we should just grant Josh Wolf whatever authority he wants over the DKU, because at this point, anybody coming from that VHS tape <laughs> is going to be a savior for it. Um, but no, I, I would argue that this is a special circumstance. Rare was involved. Rare staffers are credited. Ken Lobb oversaw quite a bit. So I, I would say Killer Instinct 2013 is actually a full-fledged DKU reimagining of the brand. And because of the Lord of Games appearing incognito as a backpack, it is a full-fledged Fish and Chaps DKU brand. So uh, get, re- get ready drafting those forum posts about how uh, KI 1 and 2 are still canon because KI 2013 is just a result of the time travel and KI shenanigans and KI too. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Have fun, have fun with that. But <laughs> yes, I, I, I am making the declaration now. Killer Instinct 2013 is DKU, or to put it in a more thematically appropriate fashion, Ultra Congo. Awesome victory! This has been a File 2 production. Hey, Rico!